So I'll tell you what I'm going to do tonight. I know as a promoter, you always love the fact every time a WWF champion puts the title on the line. So tonight in Philadelphia, here on Raw, I am putting the WWF title on the line. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Don't ever turn your back on me. Because you never know. Even though I give you my word, I wouldn't hit you. I just might knock your damn head off. You're probably wondering, well, Steve, who's going to be your opponent? The way I look at it, there can only be one opponent for Steve Austin, and that is Mr. Vince McMahon. What? What is he talking about? you got to be kidding me. If you want to see Austin and McMahon, give me a hell yeah. So I got to ask you, do you accept the challenge or do you not? No way. Let me put it to you this way. We can do things the easy way or we can do things the hard way. Some of these people like it when I do things the hard way. So tell me what you're going to do. Give me some idea of what the what the easy way is and and what the hard way is. What's your definition? I'll tell you what the easy way is. The easy way is for you to handpick any WWF official back there, come back to the ring, and fight Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title. I'm giving you a chance to win it all, to win the WWF title. The fact of the matter is, I could probably beat your ass with one hand tied behind my back. Now, if you don't choose to do the things the easy way, then by certainly you can do things the hard way. What's the hard way, Mr. Austin? The hard way is this. I done told these people it's going to be Austin McMahon. By doing things the easy way, you got a chance to win a WWF title. To do things the hard way means that I'm gonna hand pick one of these WWF cameramen, I'm gonna take him backstage to your office and I'm gonna beat your ass in front of the world anyway. You and me have got to stop, this ain't going nowhere. Do things the easy way, you got a chance of winning the belt. Do the things the hard way, all you gotta do is get a chance to get your face swole shut. Either way you look at it, I'm going to give you 30 minutes to make up your mind. 30 minutes, no more, no less. You make the decision, the easy way or the hard way. I ain't going nowhere, and if you think you're going somewhere, you're dead wrong because your limo driver's been beat up and you got four flat tires. Let me ask one more time. If you want to see Austin McMahon, give me a hell yeah then that's the way it's going to be. And that's the bottom line. Because Stone Cold sets up. My God, Austin's gone too far. Hello and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, where we're going back in the time machine to April of 1998 to bring you your WWF coverage. This is volume two for the month of April. Volume one is WCW, looking at Spring Stampede, and volume three 
is, of course, your ECW coverage. Uh, joining me on the WWF side of things for this month, we have firstly Dan Willing. Dan, how are you doing? Good evening, sirs. <laughs> uh, and we also have Rory McNamara. Rory, how are we doing? We're not bad. Evening, all. Good evening, good evening. Um, first things first, as always, we'll open with the news for the month. Um, so, Rory, I'll uh, throw over to you to lead us through this segment. Okay, so what I'm going to do for you all, I'm going to talk you through uh, just some of the headlines, some of the big events news-wise you've seen in the WWF this month, and a little bit of a summary around them, because there was a lot going on. Uh, the biggest of all was on the uh, 13th of April, in which Raw finally defeated Monday Nitro head-to-head, clean as a whistle in the ratings, by 4.6 to 4.3, no, more than uh, 0.2, so it was outside the margin of error, a clear victory for Raw for the first time since the 10th of June, 1996, in a pure head-to-head fashion. Show built around a match which never took place in the end between Steve Austin and Vince McMahon, which we will get to very shortly on the show, uh, was enough to defeat Nitro's own go-home show for their Spring Stampede pay-per-view. Nitro did pull ahead again the next week, but they had to hotshot Hogan Savage to get there, and it can be said that the momentum is very much with the WWF at this point. And that came off the buy rate for WrestleMania 14, which we talked about extensively in last month's show. It's estimated 700,000 buys, which is 35% of the entire entire total PPV universe. Uh, A very nifty Titan Sports gross amount of $10.5 million alone from the buys. If you take in the live gate, which was $1 million and an estimated 273,000 in merchandise, raking in a cool 11.8 million. So maybe WrestleMania really is the biggest show of the year after all. We did have another pay-per-view this month, Unforgiven, which took place uh, towards the end of April. Again, extensive coverage coming up for you, coming up for you on that on the show a bit later on. Uh, we'll run through all the results there and then, but safe to say the two big events were The Undertaker defeating Kane in the first ever Inferno match. And Dude Love, yes, Dude Love defeating, eventually, Steve Austin by disqualification. We'll get to how that happened also a bit later on. After one, Vince McMahon was smashed in the hair. In, in, in the hair. <laughs> if, you can, if, if you can find it in the head. <laughs> that, that'll quell the rumours. <laughs> by one massive chair shot from Steve Austin. Hair, head, uh, it's all material. We'll talk about that later on for you as well. Big pay-per-view in front of 21,000 fans in Greensboro. Again, a huge, huge, huge turnout for a B-level pay-per-view. Shows just how hot wrestling is at the moment. Although there are also always some people yet to be convinced, uh, as a New York Times article this month uh, headlined, TV ratings rise as taste level plummets, written by one Laurie Miffin, which was basically slagging off professional wrestling because that's what the mainstream media like to do, uh, comparing it unfavorably to South Park and also quite amusingly not differentiating between the two very different products now that are WCW and WWF. He believed that the tactics of a WWF, as he didn't put it, are working as the ratings for the shows in question are strong, few advertisers are rebelling, and more and more parents, most importantly, seem not to care. And a final bit of news here for you, because this is something I know that a lot of people have been talking about over the last month, and that's the status of Shawn Michaels. He's been mentioned on and off throughout TV this month, but in passing, really. He didn't aggravate his back injury any further at WrestleMania, but if you watch that match, you can see he was taking it as easy as he could, yet was still racked with pain every time he even took a step. He is now officially suffering from two herniated discs, and he has been ordered to rest his back. 
No expected timetable when it comes to his return. Uh, but PW Torch is speculating could be fit in three months' time, but that seems very, very fanciful indeed. 12 months is probably a far more sensible, um, sensible estimate, especially when you consider not just this particular injury, but all the strains he's been putting with all the huge back bumps he's taken in the last 13 years. Of course, the question is there whether he'll feud with or rejoin up with DX. As soon as we hear anything about that on future shows, we will let you know. And one more thing on DX, who are now fully comprised of Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Sean Waltman, still being known as The Kid, the road dog Jesse James, the badass Billy Gunn, and China. They invaded WCW. Yes, they did. The Raw show at the end of the month took place in uh, Hampton, Virginia, just 30 miles away from where the one-hour Nitro occurred, at the Scope in Norfolk. And as I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later in the show, DX, quite frankly, they turned up. They got on a Jeep, plenty of war and shots fired metaphors, as they do every week for various other reasons. And they tried to get into the arena with very little success, it must be said. But they did have some fun with fans on the outside. And that is... The clearest metaphor yet that the two companies are now very much at war. Uh, Dan, out of all the uh, headlines that Rory so kindly took us through there, uh, pick one and uh, talk to me about it. Offer me some uh, insight into one of them. What, what to you is the biggest news story of the month? Oh, it has to be that they've actually managed to defeat Nitro in the ratings for the first time in two years. The, we've, the narrative has always been that the WCW is the cool place to go and has been superior to the WWF, but with the rise of Austin's, you know, crowning achievement in WrestleMania and a pretty well-paced McMahon-Austin feud that has been bubbling over the surface for a couple of months with, you know, obviously Mike Tyson, but now it's now fully at the boiling point. And the prospect of them actually facing off is what obviously turned a lot of people away from Nitro and uh, made them victorious, which is which is obviously fantastic news for the for the Fed, who's been on the back foot for so long. And it's it's vindication from McMahon and his creative team that this new direction that they've been trying to push the company in for the next four months or so is working. You know, that is it is as binary as that. They have beaten their main competition for the first time in two years. And that is something that they have to be obviously be incredibly proud of because they've been on the back foot. They've got a lot less resource than WCW have in terms of the talent at their disposal. And in many ways, it's, it's a really you know, momentous achievement considering how on the ropes they were just five months ago. There were rumours that Raw was going to be cancelled because of the poor ratings, and now they're actually ahead. Um, just shows you how much can change in wrestling in, in a couple of months, and it's, it's testament to how well Austin and McMahon's storyline is being received by the fans. Um, Rory, more of a philosophical question about sort of wrestling in general for you, off of based off what Dan's just said to me. Um, that show on the 13th that defeated Nitro, the first Raw to do so in, in two years, it's not a particularly great show um, when you take the total package, but it's a show with two unbelievably over superstars that are on another level in Stone Cold Steve Austin and the character of Vince McMahon. They open the show, they give you a show-long hook, they're weaved in and out of the narrative throughout the show, and they close the show. All the stuff in the middle, you can take and leave half of it, and a lot of it is bad, even now in WWF, a lot of the undercard is bad, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on that when we get to the pay-per-view. But what does sort of, that, that was the raw 
to finally defeat Nitro. What does that say about sort of wrestling? Like you can achieve so much with, I, I mean, not so little, but with, with so few people contributing to it in those two stars. And it doesn't really matter what else you put with it, but you can achieve a lot with it. Absolutely right. Think about it. The Raw, which finally defeated Nitro in the ratings, the very first match which took place on that Raw was a chain match between the DOA and Los Bariquas. I'm sure they will be happy to claim their share of the credit for that one. But no, you are absolutely right. It is all about any form of television, any form of entertainment. It's all about the characters. And as Dan has touched on, Austin and McMahon are just so hot as characters right now. You cannot wait to see what they're going to try to do to each other next. It's classic old-school wrestling peel-face storyline, but with a whole new modern-day twist with this new attitude, this new era, whatever you want to call it, new mood that the company have been pushing over the last six months, and now they just lit the touch paper, and it's burning, scalding hot. And it deserves to be. As you say, it was not a great show. There was a lot of rubbish on there. But does it matter? I mean, think about it. When I tune in to watch Nitro, I talk about this more on Volume 1 with Eric. I know what I'm going to get. I'm Definitely, if I'm going to compare the two shows work rate-wise, WCW are going to smoke them. But are people really tuning in for decent to good to very good quality TV matches these days? I'm not sure they are. They want to see Steve Austin hit Vince McMahon with a stunner and overcome him week after week. They want, you know, they want DX to uh, give them their interactive promos. They want Undertaker to destroy Kane every week. It's, it's about believing in the people who you see every week. I mean, pick any soap opera, any TV show you want. The quality of their storylines go up and down. And your mileage might vary how you actually go up, but that's by the by. But you always remember the big names, the big characters who play them. And WWF have got that. They've got big names who are doing big things. What's Hulk Hogan doing right now that's particularly important in WCW? Apart from everybody telling him how great he is. And he's a WCW champion. Whereas Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, Undertaker, Kane, Paul Bearer. Now, these are, these are already big names, which are now been cat- catapulted into the stratosphere because people cannot wait to see what they want to do next. And I very much count myself in that number. And as poor as the show was, outside of the Austin McMahon dude love stuff, they fully deserve to win the ratings on the 13th. First Raw of the month opened with Vince McMahon coming out for a promo. Vince tells us that since his arrest last week, Austin has learnt a lesson. Vince says that Austin will no longer be the beer-swilling, trash-talking, blue-collar, stone-cold we know. Vince says that tonight we will get a new and improved stone-cold Steve Austin. We have the Raw Wrestling debut of the NWA World Champion and UFC veteran Dan Seven. He comes out accompanied by Jim Cornette, picking up a quick victory via armbar. DX came out for a promo. Road Dog says that DX is comprised of the best young talent in the business today. Expert says that the grumpy old men are all on the other show, and Hunter says that his bazooka is locked, cocked, and ready to unload. After the break, DX tagged their logo on people and furniture using spray paint backstage. Steve Blackman defeated Brian Christopher in a competitive match after a bicycle kick and a submission. Tennessee Lee came down to introduce Jeff Jarrett after the match, but Jarrett jumped Blackman from behind and smashed him with a guitar. Backstage, Triple H dared the rest of DX to piss on the DOA's bikes. So they did. 
Cactus Jack came out for a promo wearing a neck brace. Sitting in a chair in the ring, Jack talked about the pain he is in, but he refused to let punks like DX put him out of the business. He said last week, as he and Funk had been lying there in agony, the show had ended and all anyone had cared about was Stone Cold Steve Austin. For years, he said, people had told him to be Cactus Jack. And he was, he was Cactus Jack, but when he was lying there helpless, people chanted someone else's name. He was happy for Austin, he was happy he's the champion, he considered Austin a friend, but the people chanting his name last week had disrespected him and Terry Funk. He wanted to give the fans a chance to apologise and they did not. So for the first time in 13 years, he decided that it wasn't worth it anymore and it would be a long time before you see Cactus Jack in a ring again. Foley started to leave, then he grabbed the mic and tearfully thanked the fans who enjoyed the Cactus matches. We had a video of the nation jumping Farouk in the parking lot earlier today. The Rocco and Owen Hart had a fun back and forth affair which ended when China ran in and Owen hit Owen with a baseball bat while he had the sharpshooter locked on the rock. Vince McMahon came out to kick off the second hour. He introduced a new and improved stone called Steve Austin. Austin came out wearing a suit and a tie. He went to the corner of the ring to pose but Vince told him to stop and Austin obeyed. Vince says this was the first step in Austin becoming the greatest WWF champion in all time. Vince asked Austin where his Gucci shoes were and Austin said that they were too tight so he wore his wrestling boots instead. Vince took Austin's hat off him and threw it into the crowd saying it didn't go with the suit. Vince asked what had made Austin change his mind. Austin said that when he was in jail he realised he could not beat Vince because Vince had too much money and too much power. Austin pulled out a camera and posed for a photo with Vince of the two of them holding the belt. Austin then told Vince to get the film developed because it would be the last damn time you would ever see Stone Cold Steve Austin in a suit. He tore it off and threw it into the crowd. Austin says he won't change for anybody. He hit Vince low, took a picture of Vince in pain and stormed off. This was a fantastic segment. The DOA challenged DX to a fight. Luna Vachon defeated Matt Knowles in an intergender match in less than 30 seconds. We had a Val Venus vignette. Val says he always rises to the occasion and gets up for the role. Mark Miro came out with Sable but immediately sent her to the back. Miro then took on Ken Shamrock. Shamrock hit a belly to belly and looked for the ankle lock but the Nation hit the ring for the DQ. The Nation beat down Shamrock after the match. We heard from The Undertaker for the first time since WrestleMania. Taker vowed to win the Inferno match at Unforgiven and says that it would be the beginning of Kane's eternal damnation. The lights cut out and Kane and Paul Bearer appeared on the screen at the cemetery where their parents are buried. Kane destroyed their parents' tombstones with a hammer before setting them on fire. Our main event sees Triple H and the New Age Outlaws take on the DOA. They had a standard six-man tag which built to a hot tag before eventually breaking down into a six-man brawl. Hunter picked up the win for his team with a pedigree on chains. DX beat the DOA down with chairs after the match until LOD2000 ran out to make the save. So uh, with the uh, opening news segment out of the way and the pay-per-view for the month coming towards the very end of the month, we have a lot of TV to discuss in the meantime. We'll start with the main angle from the 6th of April edition of Monday Night Raw. That was the old Stone Cold. The new Stone Cold wants you to take this camera and get the film developed because this is the absolute last time we will ever see Stone Cold Steve Austin wearing a ridiculous suit like this son of a bitch I got. I knew it! I knew it! I knew it! Wait a minute! The hell with a corporate image! Fire bitch! The rattlesnake! Ah! Rattlesnakes don't make corporate pets! What's he doing now? How much the hell you got a man? 
remember, son, what you see is what you get with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I ain't fancy, and I'm a redneck from South Texas. You're damn right, and I ain't gonna change for nobody. Thing to say to you, Vince. Hell. Like I told you before, I said it to someone else, I'll say it to you. DTA, don't trust anybody. Now, what I want you to do is bow down for Stone Cold. This is as you'll probably notice is a theme with as Rory and Dan and myself have just spoken about um, the good stuff on Raw tends to involve these it is Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin it was the start of the second hour uh, Vince McMahon came out to introduce to us the new and improved Stone Cold Steve Austin Austin came down the ring down <laughs> to the ring wearing a suit and tie went to the corners in the ring to pose but Vince told him to stop and Austin obeyed Vince said this was the first step in Austin becoming the greatest WWF champion of all time. And Austin said that while he was in jail, he realized that he could not beat Vince because Vince had too much money and too much power. Austin then pulled out of a camera and posed for a photo with Vince of the two of them smiling, holding the WWF belt. Austin told Vince to go and get the film developed because this was the last time you would ever see Stone Cold Steve Austin in a suit. He then tore the suit off and threw it into the crowd. <laughs> Austin says he won't change for anybody. He hit Vince low, took a Vince picture of Vince in pain and stormed off. Uh, Dan, uh, I'll come to you first. What did you make of this segment? Probably the shining segment from the 6th of April. Um, as most of the things with Austin and mine um, in the last couple of weeks, I thought it was brilliant. The bait and switch of Austin's, you know, the old Stone Cold would tell you to get this camera shove up your ass. And then you're thinking, oh, no, this, is, this actually might actually be happening. But then he turns it around and obviously, you know, reveals it was all rude and ha-ha, got another one on you over there, Mr. McMahon. Um, yeah, just brilliant. I think Austin is just so entertaining at the minute. McMahon's so entertaining at the minute. And you put them together and it's just gold pretty much every single time. And, you know, you know, it's just compelling television at its absolute best. You, you can't get away from it. It's just so good and it's so entertaining. Uh, Rory, uh, your thoughts on this segment? Yeah, you won't get much argument out of me on this one. Again, I just love the little things to get this. Um, one in particular, where it's an Austin was wearing trainers and Vince noticed, saying, no, they're not, you know, they're not shiny new shoes. I said, well, my feet hurt in those, which is a pretty good explanation. But of where course, are the hurt... Gucci shoes? Mr. Where are the Gucci Austin? shoes? That, that's fantastic. Where are the Gucci shoes? You mean Vince doesn't supply those as part of his guaranteed contracts anyway? <laughs> it was all a part of a clue for where we were going two minutes later. I don't think anybody really believed that Austin was going to be the new corporate champion at this point. But if horror of horrors, they actually considered putting Austin in that position, which I hope they don't for a very, very, very long time, then he proved he's got the chops to do it. What I'm going to say now seems staggering, but I think it's true. Austin is almost undervalued as a mic performer. I mean, a lot of the deserved praise he gets for his mic work is him, you know, the crowd eating a palm of his hand, him saying he's going to beat people up and nobody's going to stop him doing it. That is what he's lauded for. And quite correctly. But the nuance of his character work, tremendous. When he's there posing for that picture with that big cheesy grin, 
Now, I almost believe that he was Vince McMahon's chosen boy, you know? Fantastic, fantastic segment. Didn't tell us anything we didn't already know, but it made it absolutely clear that the, the battle now is between... It is very much between good and evil and our own individual perceptions of good and evil as well. Just brilliant stuff. Uh, what this segment said to me, really, is that there, there aren't many characters in wrestling that you could pull this off with not many people not many baby faces could pull off the stone cold steve austin role in this segment and come through it unscathed without having compromised some sort of that badass integrity like that austin just has more than probably anyone in wrestling at this moment and like coming out dressed in a suit smiling but i think the reason it works so well is is obviously because it's Stone Cold Steve Austin and he's just in this sweet spot where probably no one else in wrestling is on his level. But you also have sort of the contrast with Vince McMahon, because I agree with you, Rory. At no point do do I think, okay, Austin is now this corporate champion. He's this puppet. But Vince McMahon does. And me, as I as a viewer watching this, I can see that Vince McMahon believes what's happening. But then I think, well, actually, he's going to get got here like Austin's outsmarting him and it's Vince McMahon's willingness to just be the geek of the situation and to just be shown up so blatantly and just humiliated and Stone like I think it's the yin and yang of Austin could a character in Austin's spot here could easily compromise like their tough side by by doing this little bit of comedy but because Vince is so easily duped it just works perfectly I think, honestly, it's like you couldn't pull this off with any other performers in either of the big two companies, I don't think. I think it has to be these two. Stone Cold Steve Austin came out to start the second Raw of the month. He threatened to hold up the show until Vince came out. Vince did come down to the ring, escorted by Patterson, Briscoe and two men in full SWAT gear. Austin demanded to know who he'd be facing at Unforgiven, but Vince said he hadn't made up his mind. Austin noted that Vince hates everything about him, the beer, the language, his gestures, his fashion. Austin says Vince didn't want a champion like himself, he wanted to be the champion. Austin then declared he would defend the title tonight against Vince. Austin said he could beat Vince with one arm tied behind his back. Austin said Vince could accept the challenge and get his ass kicked in the ring or refuse and Austin would beat him down in his office. Austin warned that Vince couldn't leave because Austin had already beat up his lemon driver and left him with four flat tyres. After the break, Vince McMahon was confirming with Patterson and Briscoe backstage. They said Austin was making a fool of Vince and Vince needed to put a stop to things once and for all tonight. The DOA took on Lost was in a chain match. DX jumped the DOA at ringside. Uh, hitting chains with a pedigree on to a chair and a pile driver on the ramp. DX then attacked Skull and ate balloons of the referee throughout the match. They invited Los Bariquas to join them celebrating before turning, them, turning on them and beating them up too. Backstage, Shane McMahon had now joined the discussion with Vince, saying Vince would get hurt if he took on Stone Cold. Vince was offended that Shane didn't think he could take Austin. A tag team match was about to start, but Vince came down to the ring to interrupt. He talked about his, the heritage of the company passing from his grandfather to hopefully his children and eventually their children. He said the WWF had always been about honour and integrity, and these qualities were lacking in Austin. 
Vince said a man had to do what a man had to do and that he would fight Austin tonight. A tag team match was initially scheduled, but before it could get underway, the lights went out and Taker appeared, destroying Scott Taylor, Aguila and Pantera. Taker said it was time for him to show Kane what evil was all about. Jeff Jarrett and Taka Michinoku had a short match that ended via DQ when Taka was laid out by Club Kanawakazi. Jarrett put him in a figure four afterwards. Fruit came out for a promo with taped ribs. He said he would take more than a crap rig to kick his ass. He said that give it, he was giving the nation a chance to finish the job. The Rock came out and talked smack before the nation's head into the ring to attack Farouk. This brought out Shamrock and Steve Blackman to even the odds. They had a short brawl before being separated. Terry Funk came out for a promo. He said he isn't a quitter like Cactus Jack. Introduced a new partner who is hardcore who hadn't been given a chance by Vince McMahon. He introduced Flash Funk. JR says that Flash Funk looks a little too cold. The Funks faced the Quebecers with two cold Scorpio picking up the win with a 450 splash. Luna came out for a promo. She said the anticipation for Unforgiven is worse than PMS. She calls out Sable and says it's time they settle things right now. This brought out Goldust pretending to be Sable. Luna tore off Goldust's dress and he, as he squealed and told her to stop it. Sable ran out and attacked Luna until Goldust pulled Luna away. Steve Blackman and Ken Shamrock took on the new Midnight Express with Jim Cornette and Dan Seven before it was eventually thrown out by the referee after the match broke down into a four-man brawl. Kevin Kelly was backstage with Vince. Vince admitted he had butterflies in his stomach but he wasn't afraid of the US government, he wasn't afraid of Ted Turner or Time Warner and he wasn't afraid of Stone Cold Steve Austin. The Headbangers came out for a tag match but Undertaker came out and destroyed them both. Paul Bearer and Kane came out to challenge Taker to face Kane next week at their parents' graves. We had another Val Venus video package. Owen Hart with LOD 2000 and Sonny took on Billy Gunn with the DX, with Owen picking up the win via a roll up on a distracted Billy Gunn. Time for our main event as Vince came out for his match against Steve Austin. During the pre-match stare down, Vince slapped Austin before cutting a promo, noting that Austin had claimed he could beat Vince with one arm tied behind his back. He wanted to see if Austin was a man of his word. Austin obliged, so the match was on. As Vince was warming up, Dude Love's music hit. Dude came out and said that while he and Steve were tight, Uncle Vinny writes his checks. Dude called Austin the toughest SOB and said that he could kick his ass, but Vince shoved him down. Dude initially went after Vince, with Austin trying to go to break it up, but Dude snapped and turned on Austin, applying the mandible claw. Vince and his stooges left, with Vince calling out Dude from the ramp and having to be held gap. The show ended with Dude putting Austin back in the claw on top of the announce table. Uh, moving on a week, and we have probably the biggest angle of the month. Um, we already touched on it at the start of the show. Uh, Austin challenged Vince McMahon to a match for the WWF Championship that night. Uh, throughout the evening, Vince went back and forth. He was conferring with different people backstage. Some people told him to take the match because Austin was making him look like a punk. Some people told him to refuse because he was going to get beaten up. But in the end, Vince decided to accept the match. And it was set that Stone Cold Steve Austin's first ever WWF title defense in history would be against Vince McMahon on Monday Night Raw. So at the end of that show, Vince did come out for the match. They were squared up. And he slapped Austin before stating that Austin had claimed previously that he could beat Vince with one arm time behind his back. And he wondered if Austin was a man of his word. Austin obliged to this stipulation. So he did, in fact, have one arm time behind his back. Before the bell could ring and make Austin's first title defense official, Dude Love's music hit. He interjected himself in the situation. Uh, initially, Vince and Dude Love in ended up scuffling. But Dude snapped and turned on Austin, applying the mandible claw. 
Vince was actually dragged away by the Stooges and he was held back from attacking Dude Love. And the show went off the air with Dude Love applying another mandible claw on Austin on the announce table. Um, Rory, I'll come to you first with uh, two questions. Um, tackle them however you want. First one, what did you make of this, the, the show long angle? That is probably the sole reason. Well, no, not probably. Definitely the sole reason that Raw was able to defeat Nitro in the ratings. And uh, what do you make of the latest re reincarnation of Mick Foley and the role he found himself in here? <coughs> yeah, I'll take both of those. First things first, right from the very second where Steve Austin outright challenged Vince McMahon to a championship match, I knew we were going to be in something very special for the remaining two hours and how right I was. Because what Steve Austin was saying was right. Vince McMahon does want to be WWF champion. This entire company that uh, he bought from his father 14 years, 14, 15 years ago now, it all lives vicariously. It's, it's, he wanted to be Hulk Hogan. We know famously he, he would have been Ted DiBiase. Now, Bob has said in the past he thinks he wanted to be Shawn Michaels. He probably deep down even wants to be Steve Austin. So all of this was grounded in truth. Vince McMahon does want to be WWF champion. And just that little line there, throwaway. I didn't even notice it at first when Austin said, hell, son, I could even beat you with one hand tied behind my back. You know, just simple storyline stuff that played in. And those backstage vignettes, like, they cracked me up. Briscoe and Patterson, what fantastic suck-ups they are. <laughs> what, what, what have they been doing for years? You know, they've been just two washed-up old wrestlers who modern-day crowds just couldn't care less about. But they've been... Brilliant. And just what it does look like is an extension of their real life yes men role. You know, it's a brilliant, brilliant moment where they were trying <laughs> they were trying to teach him a hold. And uh I think it was Patterson crab Briscoe's legs tries to counter for the stunner. And Patterson goes to punch Briscoe in the back of the leg, say, that's what you call a punch. And Vince just looked on like an apprentice bricky on his first day. Clearly no idea what it was, just stood there, mock said, uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking great. And you saw Vince gaining confidence throughout the rest of the show. And I honestly believed that he wanted to kill Steve Austin at the end, that he really did want this match to take place. And I'll tell you what, he, uh, let's say Vince trained for the possibility that he might be getting in the ring one day. Let's, uh, let's just leave it at that, shall we? Because we never know who's listening. And then the fact that WCW tried to pull WWF up for the match not taking place. Come on. That's... It's been called a bait and switch, even by people who like this, uh, who, well, most people who do like this angle. It wasn't a bait and switch at all. It was storyline advancement. When Dude Love first came out, like most people, I was like, huh? But then when you see what he was doing, and then you tie it back to Cactus Jack's promo the week before, where he said he, everybody was asking him, why don't you just be Cactus Jack? And he was Cactus Jack. But people chanted for Steve Austin over him. That was the catalyst for that turn. So even that made sense when you think about it. And they got themselves into a position where I was wondering, really seriously wondering, as much as I love Steve Austin, love Vince McMahon, who Steve Austin was legitimately going to be able to challenge at the pay-per-view. Within those two minutes, they answered the question. They elevated Mick Foley, made him seem like a believable title contender, a dangerous man, as dude love, easily hitherto the least threatening of his three characters, and, of course, we had compelling, entertaining, massively enjoyable television between, again, the two best characters in wrestling at the moment. Bravo. 
Dan, I'll uh, come to you. Your thoughts on the segment, the, sh the, the storyline throughout the show, all of it. Um, it's, it's been interesting to see how the whole <coughs> Vince McMahon, or even uh, take an example, his voice from when he cut his um, broken jaw, oh, hell no promo just before um, <laughs> WrestleMania. How that was, you know, still, it was still like a villainous promo, but it was very measured. It was very kind of, you know, notwithstanding. And Mr. Austin, I do believe that, um, how could he do that? You know, it was very measured and quite, is still his old Miss McMahon promo. But then by the time he gets into the ring and he, he's worked himself up into this, into this mindset that, he, that he's going to be the champion. I, I, I'll be a Steve Austin, of course I will. That his voice suddenly turns into this kind of manic, vindictive side of things where, you know, tie behind you are back, like that. And it's, it feels like the rage is suddenly starting to simmer and boil to, you know, boil to the surface. And that just makes it seem like there is going to be more to come for Mr. McMahon, to come, you know, which is difficult to believe at some stages because he's already being a really good heel. But to me, this obviously, I didn't, I personally didn't think that there was any going to be any chance that this match was going to happen just two weeks after Austin wins the title because it's, it's wait, you know, such talk about um, instant gratification, you know, it's all good to get this, you know, get this kind of <coughs> angle going on in the first place. But, the main point of it, as Rory has said, was to introduce the new number one contender. And Mick Foley as a wrestler is perfect for this. Not only in terms of a guy who is probably the only kind of real main event star they've got who, has, who hasn't been tied up um, with other things. Like, you know, Kane Untake obviously had their own thing going on. Owen Hart's been degraded to the point of mid-card uh, mediocrity. Mick Foley's still got enough juice left in him so that he could easily fit into a one- or two-month program with, with Austin. And not only that, but also Austin's new ring style with his, um, his obviously his neck injury is more of a brawling style. And who's the best brawler currently working in wrestling? Mick Foley. So that's, you know, two brilliant reasons to actually get Mick Foley into the main event title picture and be the first feud for Austin. Um, and touching on what happened with Cactus Jack's metamorphosis into Dude Love, there was no one better in this industry than giving reasons behind their actions in words than Foley. You know, the, you know, the bits where he's touching on now, how everyone wanted him to be Cactus Jack, and he was, and he gave them every bit of energy that he could give them, and they still chanted for austin you know it's heartbreaking to see that that happen in the man's eyes because he feels like he has been betrayed by the fans and well he gave them all they want and you can understand why he's now moved on to being the corporate champ in, in, in waiting because hell i've given the fans all they want they didn't like me so sod it i'm going out for number one and that's me and yeah um dude love is like the most is the person that is probably the most you know the most um, the character that people don't want to see the most out of Mick Foley the most because they want to see either Cactus Jack or Mankind. Um, so what another way to stick it to them is to play as Mick Foley, as the players do love. So yeah, um, as an all-round angle, I thought, again, it was exceptional as to come expect between Austin McMahon and just another, again, exceptional plot point on a 
on a feud which is already turning into one of the early contenders for feud of the year in Austin versus McMahon. third Raw of the month opened with Kevin Kelly doing a special report from the cemetery where The Undertaker and Kane's parents are buried. He reports that Bearer and Kane were seen there this morning and promised to update us if anything changes. Dude Love came out for a special interview segment called The Love Shack. Vince interrupted, furious that Dude had ruined, ruined Vince's chance to humiliate Austin last week and announced that he was fining him $5,000. Vince warned Dude to never interfere in his business again and left. Dude tried to explain himself to the fans. He said he'd been trying to make peace and Austin had attacked him from behind. Dude then announced that he's facing Austin for the WWF title in six days at Unforgiven. Farouk faced Karma in a street fight with the nation held back on the stage making this one-on-one. Farouk picked up the win with a spinebuster after the match that went far too long. Backstage, DX watched the footage of them pissing on the DOA's bikes from two weeks ago. The outlaws dared Hunter to piss on the crowd. DX came out and they announced that Hunter is facing Owen at Unforgiven with China in a cage above the ring. Hunter eventually pulled out a super stoker from his trench coat and sprayed the crowd. LOD 2000 and Owen Hart came out to confront them and Sergeant Slaughter booked a six-man tag for tonight. Kevin Kelly then alerted us that The Undertaker was nearly at the cemetery. Dan Seven had his second WWF Raw match as he uh, submitted Mosh with an armbar. Back at the cemetery, Taker arrived and accosted Kelly demanding to know where they were. After the break, Kelly informed us that Taker had left and was on his way back to the arena. Bradshaw defeated Goldust via DQ when Club Kamikaze ran in and attacked him. Steve Steve Austin came out for a promo to kick off the second hour. He knew last week that Vince had been lying when he said there hadn't been a challenger yet and it turned out Vince and Dude had been conspiring against him all along. Yes, with an arm tied behind his back, Dude would always beat Austin, but Austin said he would always get back up and get payback. Terry Funk and Two Gold Scorpio faced the new Midnight Express. They had a good little tag team match which ended when Scorpio picked up the win with a 450 splash. Dan Seven attacked Scorpio after the match, but Terry Funk chased him away with a steel chair. We got another Val Venus video package. Sable came out in an evening gown for a promo. She said her body would not humiliate her and she could care less if Luna stripped her naked, but it would be worth it to get her hands on Luna. Michael Cole talked to Vince, who denied there was a conspiracy against Austin. He said he was there, ready to fight tonight. Owen Hart and LOD 2000 were back to take on Triple H and the New Age Outlaws. The heels got the heat on Owen for a while until he got the hot tag to Animal and the match broke down into a six-man brawl. Trying to grab Sunny on the outside and Hawk begged for her life, with X-Pac taking advantage of the destruction to hit Animal with a chair. Billy Gunn hit Animal with a pile driver to pick up the win. Paul Bearer and Kane brought two caskets out on the stage. Bearer explained that it dug up Taker's parents to give Taker a chance to give them a proper funeral. Taker came through the crowd so Bearer ordered Kane to pour gasoline on one of the caskets. Bearer then ignited the casket, meaning Taker charged at Kane, but Kane got the better of him and chokeslammed him into the other casket. Bearer said Taker could now rest in peace with his dead mother. The main event for the go-home show for Stone Cold Steve Austin's first ever pay-per-view title defence was Dude Love vs Steve Blackman with Vince on commentary. Vince promised that he would be at ringside for Austin Lover Unforgiven, and he also promised that Earl Hebner would be the referee. Dude put Blackman in an abdominal stretch and the bell rang without Blackman submitting. The ref was bewildered, but Vince said he didn't see anything wrong with the finish and that Dude was on a roll heading into Sunday. Blackman threw down the time car before Austin ran out, laid out Dude and put the boots to Vince. Patterson and Briscoe tried to help Vince and ate a couple of stunners for their troubles. The show ended with Austin running up the ramp after Vince. 
Uh, with that, we'll move into the go-home episode of Monday Night Raw, which featured two main angles worthy of picking out and discussing. Uh, the first was the latest development in the ongoing Undertaker and Kane saga. Um, we saw Paul Bearer and Kane bring out two caskets onto the stage. Uh, Bearer explained that they had dug up Taker's parents to give Taker a chance to give them a proper funeral. Uh, Taker came through the crowd, so Bearer ordered Kane to pour gasoline on one of the caskets. Uh, Bearer ignited the casket. Uh, Taker then charged, but Kane chokeslammed him into the other casket. And Taker, uh, sorry, Paul Bearer said that Taker could rest in peace with his dead mother. Um, Dan, that's a very condensed. Uh, version of the, the, the mess that happened on Raw. Um, what did you make of it? Uh, the the live burning of the Undertaker's parents' corpses. Fuck me, man. What's what's happened? <laughs> it's a wrestling that we're getting this as a plot point in the feud. Um, I was all in on this. I was all in on this feud for for months and months and months, and they they've jumped the shark with this whole thing because it's it's so unbelievable. And it is so kind of like just it, it's it's shaking your head, inducing stuff, just thinking about how this managed to get through censorship. That you know, we're we're burning a lot, we're burning um skeletons and caskets, and not not before this, we've got you know, Kane going into a graveyard and knocking the tombstones of the parents, um, and then setting them on fire as well. So to me, this yeah, this is this has gone too far. It has gone beyond good. You know, good taste is not even mentioned in this into this whole feud. Um, yeah, not for me, not for me at all. Rory, same same question to you. Yes, yeah, so maybe Phil Mushnick's got a point after all. Um, yeah, this was just so stupid, wasn't it? Paul Burra, as so often, did his absolute best with this nonsense. And he's there and he's unloading the caskets and he's covered in dirt and soil. And he's leading them down to ringside while singing, singing, digging up bones. And I wonder if the casket is on fire. He's laughing like all your maniacal B-movie, <laughs> maniacal B-movie supervillains rolled into one. He's been terrific in all of this stuff. But I mean, really, this doesn't sell a single other ticket. But whole... If you're going to look at The Undertaker and Kane now, for that matter, there's a lot you need to buy into as a wrestling fan. We've discussed that with Undertaker in particular many times in the past. It's the ultimate suspension of disbelief character. But even here, all the things we've seen Undertaker do in the past, he's risen out of a video wall, for goodness sake. Here, his parents' caskets being brought down onto a ramp in a wrestling arena. One of them is set on fire. And then he gets chokeslammed into one. He's lying next to the bones of his dead mother. This in no way whatsoever built any heat, pun very much intended, on the match they had the next week. And it was just shock for the state of, excuse me, shock for the sake of shock. They've got so many good storylines cooking at the moment. They don't need to just get, you know, the, the, their friends at the FTC or whatever going, whoa, just for the sake of it. The company have gone in a very new direction now, one I, by and large, applaud. I want to keep... Well, they, they shouldn't get cold feet now. They need to keep going. But they don't need to shock people just because they can. This didn't really advance the storyline. We knew that Undertaker's parents were dead. 
what does a casket being set on fire and Undertaker being chokeslammed into the other one prove? We already know that Kane is evil. They've told that story extremely well over the, over the uh, last five months. So yeah, this was schlocky, horror crappy stuff. The crowd didn't know how to react, although I certainly did. Not good. And I mean, it's so easy to... like. It, it would take someone, a fan, who has followed this storyline, two minutes to write a promo about like Kane having been burned before like due to the fault of the undertaker and they're having an inferno match like and how Kane like isn't intimidated by the fire but undertaker hasn't felt like it's not difficult to build an angle around that plot point without jumping the shark as Dan like <laughs> rightly put it like it's so <laughs> simple they it's over for overcomplicated went too far it's not irredeemable, but it does depend how it progresses from here. Because if it's just a, the case where it's sort of one upmanship every time and it just gets more and more ridiculous, then we will lose any sense of perspective and positivity around this storyline. Because it, there is a way to do it excellently, but there's also, as demonstrated on this show, a way to do it very, very wrong. Um, and that will lead us nicely into the last angle we discussed before the pay-per-view, um, the main event of the go-home show. Probably uh, less to say about this than all the others, but we shall see. Um, we saw Dude Love take on Steve Blackman. We had Vince McMahon on commentary. Vince was just excellent. I mean, it goes without saying. It's going to get very repetitive, I imagine. Um, but Vince was superb. He promised that he would be at ringside for Austin versus Dude Love at the pay-per-view. And he also promised that Oh Hebner would be the referee. Um, and shortly into the match, uh, dude put Blackman into an abdominal stretch. And without Blackman submitting, uh, the bell rang. And dude love was declared the winner. Uh, Austin ran out. He, uh, he hit a whole bunch of stunners on everyone. And uh, he chased Vince to the back. And that was the end of the uh, go-home show before Unforgiven. Um, Rory, uh, it, yeah, like I say, the final angle on the road to Unforgiven. What did you make of it? Obviously, they're like a, a, a callback to what this Vince McMahon character has been capable of in the WWF in the past, leading into a title match where he wants a title change. Yeah, I feel like I've seen this somewhere before. <laughs> okay, and uh, Steve Blackman main eventer as well. That's one to note. Yeah, it was fine. I I do hope that they don't play this up too often, though. A lot of the build during the pay-per-view itself, as we'll get to, is actually about this. You know, I don't want to see Mark Eaton being the third most important person in uh, in the build-up for a pro wrestling match for the world title. Just ring the bell, mate. Do your job. But uh, it was fine. And uh, it did raise the question. I had to go back through the history books on this. Uh, I did actually eventually have to give up, though, because we would never have recorded this show. As the last time somebody actually won by quote-unquote submission with an abdominal stretch. I think we wanted to go back into the 40s. Probably not even Wilbur Schneider won by submission with them that often. But yeah, it was fine. Again, storyline advancement, and it got us to where we needed to get to. Dan, anything to add on that go-home segment? I think it was a really good, smart idea to bring and reference it, where but not go over the top about it. You know, McMahon isn't going... Oh, Austin, I am going to screw you just like the last person I was sitting at ringside for the last WWF title match I was at. You know, and 
it's subtle if you, as long as you don't overplay it like Rory said and you don't have every single match having a cloud of, of whether it's, Min, it's Mr. McMahon going to screw Austin out of his title on this week's episode of Raw against I don't know Henry Godwin have it as have it as important matches you know have it um brought up at really important stages but i think that they the fact that they're referencing it and the fact that most people know that this is what this is actually could happen because it has happened before as encourages people to to buy in and and see what's going to happen so yeah i thought i thought it was a really good smart idea in a short um you know, quite, quite, um, not overt way. And so, yeah, another really good plot point. I, I, I'm gushing, I'm gushing so much over this feud, but I think, you know, we should, you know, rightfully applaud it because it has been exceptionally booked so far this month. And with the uh, majority of the month's TV discussed, we do move on to our pay-per-view discussion. Uh, WWF Unforgiven in your house drew the largest crowd in the history of the Greensboro Coliseum. We've over 21,000 people in the building. Um, oh, didn't ask. Uh, Rory, do you happen to have any, the results for the show to hand? It just so occurs that I do, Mr. White. We, we, we've, all been, Thank you. We, we, we've all been here long enough, long enough now to know that we all <laughs> need to be prepped just in case. Always on our toes. Yes, I have the results for you. And here they are for Unforgiven in your house. We began with Farouk, Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman defeating The Nation, which is made up of this one, D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry and their ruler, The Rock. Triple H beat Owen Hart to retain the WWF European Championship. My friends, the new Midnight Express went over my friends, the Rock and Roll Express to defend the NWA World Tag Team Championship. Luna Vachon defeated Sable, it says here, in an evening gown match. Uh, the New Age Outlaws, Billy Gunn and Road Dogg, eventually went over LOD 2000 to retain the WWF Tag Team Championship. The Undertaker beat Kane in the aforementioned Inferno match. And Dude Love went over Steve Austin by disqualification in their main event for the World Wrestling Federation World Heavyweight Championship. Rory, what were your thoughts on this pay-per-view? It's got some rather low-end reviews, this one. I actually really quite liked it. This is the first pay-per-view, certainly of the year, certainly probably since all, maybe even Canadian Stampede, where it couldn't, definitely the first B-grade pay-per-view, where it couldn't really stand on its own big-name event feel. WrestleMania's WrestleMania, Raw Rumble's Raw Rumble. Uh, in your house, no way out of Texas was one they just written off. Here, company is now red hot after a big WrestleMania. There's a lot to prove here. These B shows can't just be throwaway anymore. Lots, lots has got to happen. Storylines have got to be advanced. Crowds have got to be into it. Everybody's got to bring their A game. And I think most people here pretty much did. Main event aside, and that was from the more brawl aspect rather than anything else. Any particularly great in-ring work here? Not really. But I think now these days with WWF, we know the trade-off. We're prepared what we are going to get. And as long as they give us high-octane storytelling, excitement, great characters, hot crowds feeding off that, then for me, nowadays in 1998, that's a successful WWF pay-per-view. And this one, with some notable caveats, was that, in my opinion. Dan, your thoughts on this pay-per-view? Uh, I wouldn't be quite as positive as Rory. Um, I think there was some good stuff in this show. But the main problem for me was that 
being April shows, there was too much on this show which either felt like the first chapter of a of a story or stuff which has been artificially elongated to get on the show. And for me, that dragged the show's overall importance feel down. And as Rory has said, yes, we, we expect the WWF's undercards to be light on in-ring action. But as someone who actually does quite like in-ring action, that is a problem. Um, and... I, I, I still, I still maintain. I still think in your in your house out of Texas is, uh, but uh, I think this wasn't as good as that show, um, in my honest opinion. Um, it's a mixed show, really. Um, it it lacked any real sort of merit or depth from a wrestling perspective. With the main event aside, really, the finishes as well let most matches down. Even if they were fine, the the, the finishes undercut a lot of it but the finishes weren't really geared towards the finality of a wrestling match and they're geared towards adding to or continuing a storyline and getting out of delivering that real finish to a contest yet because the storyline must continue um and then you get to the main event which has stone cold steve Austin, and everything hits another level and it's probably the the hottest stuff in the industry um i, I mean it's the first pay-per-view of the austin as champion era and it kind of epitomised that pattern of the WWF, which massively contrasts to the pattern you so often get with WCW shows. Uh, you got a, a lot of bad to mediocre to fine stuff on the undercard, but with Stone Cold Steve Austin in, in, in this form at the top of the bill, does that really matter? And to this crowd, who I bet every single person in that building that night will have left the building feeling like they've had a brilliant three hours, Probably not. So it's probably fine, really, overall. The show opens with a video package that surprisingly focused more on the Kane Undertaker storyline leading into the Inferno match this evening rather than the WWF title picture. Our opening match was a six-man tag team contest between The Rock, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry, who faced the team of Ken Shamrock, Farouk and Steve Blackman. Uh, in the... Uh, Entrances, Shamrock and Blackman actually did the uh, nation salute with Farouk, which I thought was quite funny. And Farouk, who, of course, had been dumped as the leader of the nation. D'Lo and Blackman start with Blackman getting in some kicks and hitting a DDT. Shamrock tags in, controls D'Lo with some nice submission work and then tags Farouk in, who gets in and whips the hell out of D'Lo with his belt with the rock and karma comically protesting, which only distracts the referee further. Blackman gets in, hits a suplex but misses an elbow So D'Lo tags Mark Henry Hits a pair of black backbreakers and a clothesline Henry tags D'Lo back in Hits a sky high for two Rock is directing traffic on the outside Which Lawler calls intelligent guidance Blackman tags in for Rook And D'Lo gets the better of him Which leads to the Rock making his first entrance into the match The Rock had huge heat He laid the boots into Farouk Henry tagged in Hits a few elbow drops of two Blackman tags in and gets power slammed by Henry. The nation take turns beating down Blackman, who plays the role of Bateface in peril here. The Rock hits a elbow drop, which gets great heat and locks on a chin lock on Blackman. D'Lo tags in, misses a moonsault, which allows Blackman to get the hot tag to Farouk. Farouk runs, runs wild on all three members of the nation. Shamrock clears D'Lo and Henry take... Uh, Blackman takes Henry, leaving Farouk and The Rock alone. 
Brock slaps Farouk, which fires him up. He hits the Dominator for the one, two, three, delivering a crowd pleasing win. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on our opening match? Mm, I love how you think that that Shamrock and Blackman doing the Black Power salute was funny. I thought that I found it really offensive. <laughs> that two white guys are just like, yeah, yeah, we support um, black black people um, having um, desperate needs to get over. Anyway, I have problems one because Farouk turning face by being betrayed by a hill faction doesn't never really work. And I don't think it's any, con- any coincidence that he appears to be not really getting over as a baby face because he's done nothing to really get the crowd into him. And he's still coming out Ken Shamrock's music. He's still dressing as one of the nations in the nation's colors. So, and when this match is built around trying to make him get over, it doesn't really work. And I, I d- Considering that Ken Shamrock is probably the Fed's third most over babyface after Austin and Undertaker, and he literally did sod all in this match, it's confusing to me as to why they're, they're trying to you know, heat up Farouk so much to the detriment of Ken Shamrock, when realistically Ken Shamrock should be kind of... If you're, not gonna, if you're you know, trying to heat up someone as a residual effect of your popularity, kind of maybe put him in another program just so he's, you know, given Farouk some breathing room to actually try and get some, um, get some heat on the rock. Um, and yeah, and again, I didn't think this was a pay-per-view standard match. This felt much more like a raw kind of top of the hour match to get building blocks onto the next kind of singles, big match between Farouk and the rock or Ken Shamrock and the rock for their blow off match. And the action itself wasn't particularly high-octane or interesting. Steve Blackman is fine. Mark Henry's improving slowly but surely. But again, not easy to bring anything to the table that's interesting. And the reason why I think anyone would give this match even a bit blink of hope is The Rock, who is making the crowd so into him with his shtick. It is so entertaining even if he is, you know, the smarmy chicken shit heel, like his, his theatrical elbow drop, his, his theatrical boot stomps, everything he does is, you know, magnetic. It's so good. And you can, you know, compare that to the Farouk and it's just one, you wonder why Farouk isn't getting over as a baby face when he's up against someone as entertaining as The Rock. So yeah, this match was a means to an end to heat up the Farouk Rock feud, but this felt more like a raw match and it was not the opener that this card really needed to get started on. Rory, what did you make of our pay-per-view opener? Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of that. A lot, I've got the times in front of me. The match was 13.32. I've got to say, I thought it was a lot longer than that. I felt like it was almost touching 20 minutes, which is probably not what you want. But even so, yes, absolute means to an end here stuff, which was always going to end with Farouk getting a pin. Must be honest, I wasn't absolutely certain at the time that it was going to be the Rocky saw laid down for the three count. And now he's done that. I don't think that's a particularly great sign for Farouk, actually. My prediction on this one is that Rock probably goes over him now at the next pay-per-view. And Farouk just slides further and further down the mid-card. This whole Farouk-Rock thing just feels to me something they need to get out of the way. Farouk used to be the leader of the nation. Rock is now the ruler. They almost have to feud so they can both carry on and the company can carry on. 
I don't think they see much money in a Rock Farouk feud going on for three or four months. I don't think anybody wants to see that. As Dan touched on, the real feud we really should be seeing here, in my opinion now, is the denouement of uh, Rock Shamrock. And they screwed Shamrock at the Rumble. They screwed him at Mania. I, by and large, went along with both of those decisions, but they can't keep holding off, holding off on it forever. And yes, he didn't offer a whole lot in this particular match. He really was the definition of just there. So I mocked him a little bit early, but I thought Steve Blackman showed some some decent flashes in this match. Uh, what he lacks in charisma, and he really lacks in charisma, he more than makes up for in effort. So he could well be one to watch in the mid-card. Yeah, means to an end stuff. Nothing spectacular. But, uh, I don't see Farouk's babyface run catching fire anytime soon. Yes, it got a pop at the end, but I think that was more for the fact that The Rock was pinned rather than Farouk was pinning him. It's a bad sign. Well, I will concede a lot of points in that this was a long, sloppy, slow, plodding 13-minute six-man tag team match, largely carried by Steve Blackman, Mark Henry and D'Lo Brown. But considering all those things, the crowd is really into this match throughout. And that's all you can really ask for on a pay-per-view opener. Like, I feel like the, the six guys, mainly those three I just mentioned, like got the most out of this match that you probably could have done. And not that I'm crediting those three because the absolute star of this match in and out of the ring was The Rock. Like all the little things he does inside the ring and on the apron as well. The guy is just a, a heat magnet. Um, like I don't think this was a good match. I don't think it was like even a mediocre match. It was probably pretty horrible overall. But as an opener for this show, I actually thought it served its purpose as as much as I you could ever hope it would. Um, I was fairly positive on it overall, despite its aforementioned flaws. Next up, we had Stone Cold Steve Austin. He came out to a major ovation. He called timekeeper Mark Eaton into the ring. He forced him to admit that Vince McMahon had told him to ring the bell in the Dude Love Steve Blackman match on Raw on Monday. Austin promises him that if he does it again here, he will beat the hell out of him all over the building. Personally, I don't always enjoy promo segments on a pay-per-view, but this was really quite short and very effective leading into the main event. Next up, we had Hunter Hearst Helmsley defending his European title against Owen Hart with China locked in a cage above the ring after interference in their WrestleMania match. While China was being raised in the cage, Owen and Hunter brought down the aisle. They eventually head inside with Owen immediately clothesline Hunter back out. Hunter eventually took control of the match after hitting a knee. China, who is now in the cage suspended above the uh, ramp, she gets a nail file out and begins filing away at the steel bars. But she accidentally drops it. Uh, but that didn't play into the match at all. I thought at some point someone would use the nail file as a weapon, or but uh, no, it was just never used again, never mentioned. Hunter hits a suplex and a knee drop, which she gets a two. He follows up with an atomic drop and a lariat, which also garner a two count. Helmsley looks on a dragon sleeper as a rest hold, while China attempts to bend the bars of the cage to escape. Owen fights out of the sleeper. He hits a sunset flip for two, but Hunter comes right back with a neck breaker before locking the same sleeper on again. China is still prying away at the bars. Owen fights out, but Hunter hits a face buster and goes back to the sleeper. Owen reverses again. He hits a German suplex and follows with a belly-to-belly. China manages to bend the bar from the cage as Owen hits the Enziguri, which gets two. Owen follows up with a pile driver and a flying elbow, but he doesn't go for the cover because China has escaped the cage and is now hanging from the outside. 
China decides she can't jump from the cage as it's too high, so she just hangs from the bottom. Inside the ring, Owen locks on the sharpshooter, but at that time, the cage begins to lower, so Owen breaks the hold. We told Road Dog that was the one that lowered the cage, and we see a brief camera shot of him sort of by the production area. Hunter looks for a pedigree, but Owen counters with one of his own. The referee is distracted trying to remove China from ringside, but the kid runs in. He hits Owen with a fire extinguisher, allowing Hunter to get the pin and retain his title after 13 minutes of action. Uh, Rory, I come to you first. Your thoughts on our European Championship match? Okay, what a fantastic worker Owen Hart is. I feel we can say that now on this show without fear of anybody uh, reprising against us, let's say that. He's just... <laughs> <laughs> He's still listening. The, the walls have ears. The walls have ears. So I better be careful. Yeah. Owen's always been terrific in the ring, moveset-wise. We all know that. I mean, Ten years ago, this very month, Dave Meltzer named him the number one worker in the world. Number one worker in the world in 1988. Just think about that. And here he showed now what a great ring general he is. He's capable of everything here, and he controlled this entire match from start to finish. Assured, confident, his timing was perfect, his moveset was on point. <laughs> yes, I'm doing all this on purpose. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be hour-long eulogy uh, for the brilliance of Owen Hart now, because um, uh, nobody's here to interrupt anymore. But maybe, <laughs> maybe he who cannot be named is, uh, is right, because... The crowd really weren't into it, though. And now I can really explain why they turned Owen Hill the next day. Being a good babyface, which Owen R is, who is excellent in the ring, which Owen R is, that's not really cutting it. I take no pleasure in saying that. The real interest of the crowd during this match was in what way is China going to interfere? Now, when a nail file is getting over, over, um, uh, over uh, an arm lock, that's when it's time to say, yeah, okay, wrestling isn't the most important thing in this company anymore. It's a shame because the match was good. Again, much like last month, I thought Helmsley held his own in there. I still have more than my fair share of questions, but he is improving slowly but surely. He's in there with the right person. Uh, but it was all about how is this match going to end? What are DX going to do to cheat Owen out of the title? And in the end, it was X-Pac uh, using a fire extinguisher. I really hope he gave that back to somebody at the end because they might be using it in about an hour's, hour or so's time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wonder where he got that one from. But yeah, match was fine. Owen probably didn't need to win here because I don't really want to see him feud with Helmsley anymore anyway. He's now gone heel again, which we know he can do. But there is still the faint whiff of missed opportunity. But the match itself was fine. And Owen Hart is a great wrestler. <laughs> uh, Dan, your thoughts on this match and, and probably Owen Hart? Um, well, whilst we're here, I think Owen Hart is, is a surefire Hall of Famer. Uh, <laughs> one of the greatest wrestlers to ever uh, lace up with her boots in the WWF ring. Okay, that's enough. I, don't, I think this was one of the matches that um, I touched on in the opening where I thought that this was e unnaturally elongated. I thought that this kind of should have ended at WrestleMania. Um, because it, you know, it did feel like a natural conclusion, and I just don't particularly want to see Owen Hart be buried anymore against DX. And oh. this, this again, it was by the end of the match, and mainly thanks to Owen's offense, you know, in the comeback, it overall was probably a good match, which is testament to his, you know, baby, underrated babyface fire. But as Roy has touched on, if the crowd don't care, then ultimately 
something needs to change and you know turning him heel again is probably a wise move in the longest grand scheme of things because if you have got you know pound for pound now owen is probably the best in-ring worker that they've got so they probably do need to have you know something like that at the top of the card and with Kane being, you know, obviously taking he's not a good wrestler really at the middle stage. Mick Foley is a brawler, but Owen Hart is there to kind of be the heel in ring worker, and that's fine with me. Um, but the, if the main point of this match was to continue to make China look like a superhero with you know extraordinary strength, then well done because everybody cared about her and everyone was keep glancing up and turn when she finally breaks out of the cage. It's a definite wow moment. It was a kind of like, you know, definitely something that I wasn't expecting because, I, again, I thought it was going to be one of those instances where China's got a pair of brass knucks hidden in her trousers or something like that. And then Helmsley just happens to find them at the bottom of the ring and then hits her in the heart in the face or something like that. But no, it was actually, you know, just a pure clean escape. And that's something, to, you know, something impressive that China can, you know, call back to whenever, you know, they need to show how impressive she is. Um, and yeah, as, as if the match is going to take place, Helmsley had to go over here, really. He's a leader of this new dominant faction in the WWF. He needs to have some gold around him, along with the New Age Outlaws. So overall, good. Not as good as their WrestleMania match, and not quite as good as um, Helmsley-wise. I'm still not convinced by him as a, you know, when he's in control, but I kind of have it all in my own way anyway. And uh, yeah, Own Hearts is great. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, when you contrast this match to the opener, it, it's infinitely better. But this didn't really feel like a match more sort of than one long angle with pro- prolonged periods of sleeper holds while we watched China attempt to move her way out the cage. It was all a little bit contrived. Um, but I don't really... Like I'm not I'm not taking the anti uh, Owen Hart <laughs> role. I mean, for me, it's a tale of two hills. Um, when you look at The Rock in the opener, and the little things he does on the apron that gets the crowd invested, and the baby face he's working against is Farouk. And when you look at Hunter Hurst Helmsley in this, working against a baby face Owen Hart, who you two have rightly lavished with so much praise. Um, to me, it comes down to Hunter hasn't really mastered the right way to be a heel in control of a match to garner heat. When he does it, it feels like the match is dragging. It doesn't really feel... I I know... I don't really know how to... But it's just an evident contrast in... Maybe it's just a natural heel charisma or whatever it is. When you compare him to The Rock at this stage in their respective developments, The Rock is just miles ahead. And The Rock is able to get a reaction out of a sloppy six-man tag where he's barely in the ring. But Hunter can work a 13-minute match on pay-per-view with Owen Hart and the crowd's dead. And I'm not going to be blaming feel- Owen Hart for that one. Like It feels like Helmsley is 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 very meticulous, whereas Rock's doing it is just natural. And yeah. maybe the crowd's, you know, it's they can I don't know if they can tell that Helmsley's kind of doing it, you know, this is like a planned okay, now I'm going to go in the corner and do a bit of stomping and then here's my high knee. Whereas whatever Rock does is just something that you've not seen before and it's unexpected and it's just something that you could easily see him doing. Maybe that's it, I don't know. And the characters, I mean, are, are, are not that different. I mean, like, they've both got comedic elements. They're both leaders of heel factions. They're, like, they're, 
similar characters and and, and as wrestlers and as performers they're at similar stages in their development and hunter would have more experience like and he is just miles behind um there, there is a clear contrast and that's what i put down to my enjoyment of this match probably being less than that of the opener despite it being a better match um it's probably worse than the wrestlemania match as well for me uh probably a bit overbooked overfought overcomplicated a bit of a contrived finish but as an angle, like Dan, you rightly pointed out, to, to promote the strength of China and the, the aura of China, it worked. Um, it didn't really work as a pay-per-view match, though. Next up, we have the NWA Tag Team Championship match with the new Midnight Express, uh, who are with Jim Cornette, defending against the Rock and Roll Express. Um, the Rock and Roll Express actually got quite a big pop coming out in front of this crowd, but... Uh, which says a lot for the uh, the crowd probably in attendance rather than how the WWF has booked them at any point recently. Uh, bombastic Bob and Robert Gibson start, but Bob bails very quickly. Gibson works over Bart's arm and the rock and roll double team. You can see streams of people leaving and uh, treating this match as a bathroom break in the crowd because absolutely nobody cared about this. Uh, the Midnight's bickered after running into each other before Bart locked on a... a Bart looked on an abdominal stretch on Ricky while Cornette did the sort of 1980s style comedy routine where he got in the ring and he challenged referee Tim White to a fight before eventually backing down. Uh, Cornette nailed uh, Ricky Morton on the outside and Bart got a two after a backbreaker. Uh, Bob missed an Alabama, Alabama jam, so Gibson got the hot tag. The rock and roll hit the double drop kick to absolutely no reaction and the referee is distracted so they don't get a pin. Gibson smashes Cornette but, and rolls up Bart Gunn, but uh, Bob runs in, hits him with a bulldog to pick up the win, and the new Midnight Express retain. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first. What did you make of our NWA Tag Team Championship match? I hated this. Like, <laughs> you can cons consider how much, how important a cog Jim Cornette was two years ago in, how, in the WWS overall programming. And honestly, now he he has go away heat with me. I can't stand his his hammy delivery. I can't stand his you know old school philosophy. I can't I couldn't stand his his put him up put him up stick with Tim White. I hated this. I hated him so much, and I can't stand this whole angle. I can't stand it. Like I think we all can, can agree. If you put the words new in an official name of something, it is doomed to fail. And I like to think this is what's happening with the new Midnight Express. You know, I don't know, I don't know what possessed me, but I went back and watched um, some of the old um, 80s matches with the original Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. And whilst they're still not all-star classics, I think they're obviously much better than this. And Jim Cornette's doing the same bloody routine as he was back in those days. And it's compared to now, it just does not work. This is awful. I can't tell you how bad this is. Um, probably like not as bad a match as Quebecers Godwins was two months ago. But in terms of how much I wanted this thing to end and get off my TV, this is the worst thing I've ever seen on pay-per-view in 1998 so far. Rory, uh, over to you. Any, any redeeming features for this match at all? <laughs> Good luck on that one. Jim Cornette, <laughs> is a, Jim Cornette is a smart man, as he 
takes every opportunity to tell us whenever he can. Yet, I don't know what's happened here. Does he? How can he not see that this whole NWA thing, when it started back in December and is still going on now for long months afterwards, how can he not see that this is Vince McMahon and Vince Russo playing one gigantic rib on him? They are mocking old-school, old-style wrestling. That's why Corner is the figurehead of it. Yet here he is, loving it and yucking it up like it's 1985. If Jim Cornette had his way, this would still be the style of wrestling in 100 years' time. And you know what? I bet the Rock and Roll Express would be there too as well. They just look so unbelievably out of place in any wrestling show these days. You've got Robert Gibson, who's 2,000 years old. Ricky Morton, who's 2,000 years old. And you've got Ricky Morton's hair needs to be carbon dated. <laughs> Bob, Bob, Holly and, Bob Holly and Bart Gunn are decent enough workers. It's giving them something to do. Uh, do you really think when they were told that they were taken off job at death row a couple of months ago, that they would then be dressed up in blue jumpsuits and pretending to be uh, Stan Lane, Dennis Condry, Bobby Eaton, whatever? You know, They would have been happy just jobbing on superstars in 30 seconds compared to that, I, w- I would wager. Yes, this is horrible stuff. It's one big joke. This should just be played out backstage. It shouldn't be turned into any sort of angle. I said that four months ago. I'm saying it again now. And it, please just let it and this style of wrestling die. I mean, I, I have no nothing to say that's positive about this match and nothing but agreement with you two. One thing I will point out, which is quite ironic, uh, both uh, the Rock and Roll Express are younger than the current WCW uh, champion, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Um, well, yes, which is, which is just almost <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but it's in fact true; they are both much younger than the man. Um, yeah, a horrible match. Didn't garner any reaction from the crowd. Um, and what I will say, it's not really a positive. But it's, it's probably, if anything, even more of a negative to this whole storyline. Nothing wrong at all, really, with the execution of the match. Fine, a little bit slow, but absolutely fine. But just the entire wrong type of match so to bury it in the way that you two did and and i also agree with as a third voice um is not really against four guys in the ring um just the whole storylines a complete shambles um yeah not really anything positive about to say about this one but it did give the vast majority of the crowd on the uh hard cam side a chance to uh, go get a drink, which was good. Next up, we have our first ever evening gown match between Luna Vachon and Sable. Uh, Luna, accompanied by the artist formerly known as Goldust, was out first. Uh, I, I mean, I was just confused about this whole match, really. The very basis of it is backwards, because the crowd are obviously way more into Sable. They want to see her get stripped, which would mean they should cheer for, cheer for Luna. And Lawler points this out as Sable makes her entrance and he asks why the Morons in the crowd are cheering for her uh, because he wants her to lose as well because he likes her. It's all a bit backwards. It all doesn't really make sense. Um, as Sable did come out, she got a huge pop um, and JR said, you'd think, uh, excuse me, JR said, you'd think Ric Flair had just walked out, which was an odd line. Uh, the match, if you can call it that, was underway. They did a lot of shoving and slapping back and forth, making small rips at each other's clothes. Luna drove Sable into the corner, and then she tore away the bottom half of Sable's dress, revealing her panties. 
Luna tried to charge into the corner, but was hit by a boot from Sable, if you can call it that. Sable then charged and took Luna down. Mark Miro ran down to the ring. He distracted Sable and started arguing with her, which allowed Luna to sneak up behind her and rip away the rest of her dress to win the match, if you can call it that. <laughs> Sable then powerbombed Luna, who tried to escape by crawling under the ring. Sable followed and emerged holding Luna's bra and panties. Uh, Goldust ran in and gave Luna his robe, so she left in that. That's the whole match and the post-match angle in about three minutes. Rory, your thoughts on our evening gal match? <laughs> yes. Uh, the greatest, One of the greatest sport commentators of all time, Richie Bono, was famously said, if you can't add anything to the pictures which are taking place in front of you, which everybody can see, then shut up. I'm going to take his advice on this one. There is nothing I could possibly say about this quote-unquote match that you will not be able to garner and work out and enjoy yourself while watching it for its three-minute duration. And, of course, the beauty of that is you can rewind it back and watch it again if you so desire, as I may or may not have done myself. But, yes, nothing to say here. <laughs> nothing nothing to say, but pl- nothing to say, plenty to see. Let's move on from that. Uh, I think the word is gratification. There are probably one or two others as well, but this is a family show. Uh, Dan, your thoughts? Well, we've officially reached the stage where um, just putting attractive women in their underwear qualifies as wrestling entertainment. So if you're into that, then good. I don't particularly um that way inclined. So I wasn't that entertained. So moving on. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't really have anything to say. Impossible to consider this a match. WWF using a pay-per-view spot to run an angle, which ultimately delivered exactly what was advertised. So good for the crowd. Uh, Vince McMahon and the Stooges, Briscoe and Patterson, came out for a promo. Vince said that the very idea that he would screw a wrestler out of the title is beneath him and that he hoped that Stone Cold would not screw Stone Cold. Just uh, adding some more callbacks to the fire that is our main event. Next up, we have the WWF tag team title match with the New Age Outlaws defending against LOD 2000. Uh, Road Dog complains about having to face the same old dinosaurs again in his pre-match spiel. Billy Gunn is wearing bright purple trunks that say Mr. Ass on the back. Uh, the match is underway and Gunn misses a body press on Animal and gets clothesline for a quick two count. Gunn bails and Animal works over Road Dog's arm. Hawk, Hawk works over Road Dog until Billy tags in and gets back body dropped. Uh, gets back body dropped and shoulder blocked. Hawk almost messes up a body slam, but stops himself from doing so. And Animal tags in and slaps on the chin lock. The LOD set up for the Doomsday device on Road Dog, but Billy clips Animal's leg from behind. From here on in, for a few minutes, the Outlaws took it in turns to work over Animal's knee. Gun hit a Feymaster for two. Animal managed to fight back with a dragon screw on gun and uh, he made the hot tag to hawk hawk splashed road dog off the top but billy hit him with the belt but it only got a two count hawk hit a german suplex on road dog and that was enough for the free a little bit out of nowhere they sold this as a title change and the crowd popped really big for it the lod celebrated with their new tag team titles but the ring announcer read out that the new age outlaws were still the wwf tag team champions Replay shows that Hawk had his shoulders down as the referee counted the pin for the German suplex. Uh, the only problem with that is that the camera did seem to suggest that Hawk sort of had his right shoulder up, but just wasn't mentioned at all. Um, the Outlaws celebrated having retained their belts and left. 
uh, the LOD in the ring, hit the referee with the Doomsday device and celebrated. Uh, Dan, come to you first. Thoughts on our WWF Tag Team Championship contest? Um, earlier in the show, I said that if you add new to anything, it normally is going <laughs> to fail. And I'd like to add uh, 2,000 to that list of, of things that you should never add to the team names just because you want to get them over as cool and hip and yeah new millennium don't use it on the lod who are also probably are they are they called lod 2000 because that is that is that, is that what the thinking is behind this um matches in five in five pay-per-views and none of them have been good or satisfying in any way shape or form which is a huge indictment because these are the two most popular tag teams in and they're still not clicking. You would have thought that one of them would have been, you know, satisfying or an injury. But no, they've all been slow, plodding messes. Um, the LOD just, I think we've covered them to death on this show so far that they have now seriously shop, you know, seriously shop worn and just not there anymore. And the New Age Outlaws just aren't good enough as wrestlers to carry them in matches. Obviously, they're, they are almost like the epitome of the new WWF style where work rate isn't important is how much of a personality you have and road dog in particular has got so much charisma that they can get over and they are over massively with the crowd and i don't blame the, the wwf for putting lod in this position as, as well because they're still the most popular babyface tag team in this company even if they have in the ring not delivered for over a year um so yeah uh, it's it's an lod match it's a new age outlaws match it's not going to be good. It wasn't good. And the worst thing is, because of that botched finish with Hawk's shoulder clearly up at, for the German Superlex, I can see this happening again in a month's time because it will be the angle of all oh, the LOD were wrongly ruled out of the WF titles because of a bad refereeing call. Let's have a rematch for the fourth time. Um, just have a, you know, Get 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 my uh, viewing planner set up for that one, whenever it may be, whether it's on Raw or over the edge. I'll be there. Um, and one final note: uh, No, we had an evening gown match in the last match, but um, Sonny, um, yeah, fucking hell, that. Rory, your thoughts on our tag team title match? And again, there's not much I can add to that either. <laughs> not 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 verbally, anyway. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, we've, I do feel like we've seen LOD 2000 versus uh, the Road Dog Jesse James, Badass Billy Gunn. I, can have, I just can't call them the New Age Outlaws. It's, I think people want to think that's a good name, but I, I, it just isn't. Anyway, I feel like I've seen this match about 2,000 times now, and I think Dan's right, 2001 is coming around the corner, and I can't wait for that either. Just not much going on here. I don't know how many times I need to say it until somebody listens to me. LOD are unrepackageable. They're on anything. In 1998, they just haven't got it. I mean, Hawk managed to botch picking Billy Gunn up at some point during this match, and yet they still get given chance after chance. Match was zip. Outlaws just—I just haven't got enough in the ring. I think the LOD are pretty much uncarryable now, anyway, as it is. So there's an on that they are, and that hackneyed, stupid German suplex shoulder down finished. I'm just sick to the gills of that. Even if they had got it right. You know, it still would have been bad. Uh, as the finish very clearly showed, Hawk had his shoulders up, so it should have been a victory anyway. Yes, this feud just is not clicking. I don't think it's doing 
the outlaws any favors either being paired with these two old glutes so if it is, is going to go to yet another pay-per-view no, I almost wouldn't mind if the LOD do win the belts. Just stop showing us this match over and over again, please. No, Nobody wants to see it. It's not helping anybody. Not only how many times have we seen this match, which is usually complete dud, but how many times do we see the LOD, whether it's against the New Age Outlaws or not, just in complete non-finishes, like whether yes. it's on Raw or pay-per-view. Just like the action's terrible and then the finish is worse every time. Um, and I do fear, like the both of you, that we are looking at match 2001, as you so rightly said. Rory. Next up, we had uh, Tennessee Lee. He introduced Sawyer Brown. Um, <coughs> they would be singing and performing. But tonight, Sawyer Brown would be singing back up to Jeff Jarrett. Uh, Jarrett came out. He performed a, a full song with the band on a stage set up by the entrance ramp. But towards the end of the song, Steve Blackman ran out and attacked him. Uh, Tennessee Lee ran in, he clocked back Blackman with a guitar, laid him out, and Jarrett put Blackman in the figure four as the crowd began to chant, we want flair. Spoiler alert, they did not get flair. <laughs> Next up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah th th thanks for clarifying that one, Chris. We probably would have heard about that before. <laughs> Could be, you know, just, just got to make sure. Uh, you never know, you never know. We move into our first ever Inferno match. Um, we had a video package recapping the storyline between the two brothers, which mainly focused on the angles we've seen since their WrestleMania encounter, culminating in the burning of Undertaker's parents last week on Raw. Uh, Kane and Paul Bearer are out first. Once Taker got inside the ring, we saw a first glimpse of the Inferno with the flames surrounding the ring. Uh, the match was underway and they hammer each other to start. Undertaker hit the old school early on and the flame shot up as he was in mid-air, which was an excellent shot, uh, camera shot, and it was very well timed by the guy who pushed the button to make the flames go a bit higher, <laughs> as silly as that sounds, but it looked great. Uh, Kane tries a backdrop on Taker over the top rope, but he lands awkwardly on the ropes and fell back into the ring where Kane stomps away. Uh, Taker uh, managed to fight his way out by going for the eyes. Uh, Kane hit Taker with a chair. They traded kicks. Uh, Kane hit a choke slam. He looked to follow up with a tombstone pile driver, but the Undertaker slipped away. Taker then hit a choke slam of his own, which Kane, of course, no sold. The pair then hit each other with big boots at the exact same time, laying each of them out. Uh, Kane ducked a lariat. He hit Taker with a sidewalk slam. And he heads up top. Uh, Taker um, sat up, cut him off, and head up, head, headed to the second rope where he hit a superplex. But Kane, of course, no-sells it again and gets to his feet before Taker can. Taker launches Kane over the top rope, and Kane looks to bail on the match. At this point, Vader ran, Vader ran down the ramp and brawled with Kane, taking him back to the ringside area. Taker, out of nowhere, absolutely launched himself over the top rope, landing and diving onto both guys on the outside in an absolutely awesome spot. Paul Bearer ran in. He hit Taker with a chair, but he no-sold it, taking the chair away, laying out Kane with it. Taker then stalked Bearer away from the ringside area to the music stage where Jarrett had previously performed. He smashed a drum over Paul Bearer's head, which busted it open and hit him with a mic stand. Taker slowly returned to ringside, Kane went for a chair shot, but Taker kicked him back into the flames where his right arm caught fire, meaning Taker had won the, won the match. Kane, with his arm alight, ran to the back. Uh, Rory, I'll come to you first. Your thoughts on our first ever Inferno match? 
you know, kind of hope it's the last as well. And I, but I don't mean that quite as critically as it might sound. So let's let's try and break this one down. The Undertaker, we hinted at this earlier, he must be such a tempting character to write for because you can almost put anything on him because he is a, a supernatural being. You know, breathes a very rarefied air, to say the very least. You come with all sorts of weird and wonderful things for the character, which on paper sound amazing. And as I said when I was talking a couple of years ago about the uh, Boiler Room Brawl at SummerSlam 96, if pro wrestling was a comic book, then you'd be able to get away with any of those and you'd be able to illustrate them and tell the story from start to finish. Yet this is taking place in the real world. So when you have a match where The Undertaker wants to set his brother on fire, and that is the, that is the modus operandi of the match which is taking place, uh, common sense dictates that you know, <laughs> liberties be seriously taken there. So you've got to tone things down many, many notches. So what we get, Paul Bearer's dream about the ring being set on fire. This wasn't like the match which Onita takes take place in, in Japan, where the ropes are often set on fire, and I'm very glad at that. We had this decent-looking contraption, which, as you say, was controlled by some guy pressing a button to send the flames going a bit higher every time, sort of in time with the moves, and it's a little cheesy, but I did like it. But so you can see what's creating the fire, so your suspension of disbelief is affected there straight away. And then you've got the very obvious fact that the match can't end for about 16, 17 minutes anyway. So they have to sort of have a ish pared down version of their WrestleMania match, which wasn't exactly high octane itself. Although the dive over the, the dive over the fire was fantastic. Credit to everybody involved for taking that spot. Then when it comes to Undertaker getting his final revenge and setting his brother on fire, then all he can really realistically do is gingerly kick him back into where the fire is where Kane's wearing a sleeve, which became, I'm afraid, all too obvious when it caught fire. And that very anticlimactically ends the match. Again, I think we know the trade-off, but you're probably asking crowds for a bit too much here. Nobody really thought that Kane was going to be shoved headfirst and just the toast in the fires of hell. But what we did get was too restrained. By its very nature, it had to be. I don't want to see anybody getting legitimately injured for any reason. But the idea overrode what the execution could be. And it made the match seem, in all fairness to the guys involved, a bit worse than it was. Because, again, they were both trying out there. I thought the work was, again, decent for what it was. A bit slower than WrestleMania, but still fairly decent. But they were hampered completely by what, again, in the back sounded great, but was never going to translate into a live environment. But kudos to everybody involved for trying. Dan, over to you. Um, I really shouldn't think like this as a wrestling fan because obviously I'm watching art forms, which I enjoy. But going into this show, I really wanted to hate this match um, because of all the stuff that we talked about. The build's been too fantastic. It's been too over the top. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of a ring being set on fire to me sounded so hokey that I immediately just wanted to say, oh, this match was a write-off. Um and I'm going to disagree with Rory. I loved this. I thought this was really good. One, I've got to give Taker and particularly Kane huge credit for going out there and actually wrestling a competent match in what was probably at least 40 to 50 centigrade degree heat. Yes. Which is, you know, wrestling is tough under normal circumstances, but actually going out there and doing that in those circumstances with Kane having no 
breathing space of his mouth at all went under that mask is sensational stuff. So huge credit to both wrestlers. Two, I actually thought this match actually was a lot better than their WrestleMania match, taking aside the spectacle of it being the first time these two guys fight. The heat segment (laughs) that Kane put on The Undertaker... I thought wasn't as slow and laborious as at WrestleMania, and it flowed better. I think both guys were a bit more back and had a bit more back and forth, and it wasn't so much as Kane works over Undertaker for ages, and Undertaker gets a big spurt in to win the match. This felt a lot more even, and crucially, I think both guys were safer because these were two big men now that knew the how knew their limits and didn't go over them. And there were some spots in this were actually really good, like the super, you know, the superplex. With the with the flames and Undertaker's old school, as we said, and of course the over the top rope dive for Undertaker were sensational things to look at, and that's the first thing about this match. It was visually so impressive to look at. It wasn't hokey. It did feel like it was in the confines of what could be done safely, but at the same time, it's something that you would always remember watching. And for the right reasons, because, you know, it's, you know, credit to whoever's control of the pyrotechnics, because at times it was a bit hokey that he went whoosh whenever Kane did a punch. But, you know, when, when, he, when the old school hits, when choke sounds get hit, when superplexes get hit and the flames just roar up and you can hear the crackling of the heat halfway through the match, it was really memorable stuff. And, yeah, I, I thought the whole concept of this match was executed about as well as it could be, in my opinion, obviously. The one issue I do have with it is that as soon as Undertaker came out and you saw that he was wearing his sleeveless wrestling gear, instantly you knew that Kane was losing because there was no way on God's earth that health and safety would allow Mark Calloway to be set on fire with spare arms. And you could see that when Kane's, you know, the really obvious paper mache cling film cocoon that... Kane had over his arm just before he got booted into the fire that it was a bit, that was the only time that did look, okay, that does look a bit hammy. But obviously health and safety have to get involved in here. And this is a guy who is needs to wrestle for another eight months of the year, not just blow off and go away after this feud's done. So look, overall, like this match with all that could have gone wrong in it and all that you know, health and safety have to take into account, I thought this was about as good as you could get and blew my expectations out the water. I guess I'm somewhere in the middle of you two for this one then. Um, I, the, the coating that they wrapped Kane up with at the end, um, it did look so incredibly fake, but I, I, I can't even really use that as a, a knock against the match because you have to give them a pass. You, you can't set the man on fire. Like, and... I mean, they they did try and hide it as well as they could. Like Kane and Bearer, like disappeared from the ringside area for a couple of minutes. Uh, sorry, uh, Taker and Bearer uh, disappeared, and uh, Kane was sort of under the ring, getting wrapped up. Uh, no mention of it when he uh, does emerge and Taker's back at ringside. Uh, Kane goes at him with a chair, and the, the way the camera is that's sort of covering his right arm, you can't you can't really see it. And it's only when he's on fire do you actually think, oh okay, yeah, he's he's wrapped up in a tremendous amount of padding there. 
But even then, Kane immediately bails on the situations, runs to the back. But that doesn't necessarily come off as like, okay, this looks really fake. This is like, okay, this man's on fire. He's running away. Like it, it, it kind of worked. And considering the stipulation, which you can't, you can't give them too much of a pass because of the stipulation, because at the end of the day, they make their own stipulations. But considering the stipulation, it did work. Um, I didn't think this match was that good, but I thought it was a hell of a spectacle. And there was enough special action and unique moments and enough visually from this that I wouldn't have changed a thing about it. Um, you, you got everything out of this that you possibly could have. Um, the, the, every high spot was excellent with the fire and the way the flame shot up on at the exact right moment for all the high spots. Um, there was so much novelty and spectacle about this that even though the match was quite slow and controlled, it was worth it. And I, I think it was you, Rory, at the start, we talked about how you thought the opener could have been 20 minutes. This was a 16-minute match that, that probably felt like a 16-minute match. It didn't feel like it dragged because there was enough uniqueness about the flames surrounding the ring that even if it was a bit... Comic bookie is a great analogy. Like, it would work so well in a comic. Even if it was a bit like that, it doesn't necessarily translate to men in tights in an arena with a ring. It it was still special enough that it worked. So overall, this would have been a, a big thumbs up for me, but I don't think I was quite as high on the actual bell-to-bell action as you were, Dan. With that in the books, we are set for our main event and the first ever actually this time, the first ever, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin WWF Championship defence as he takes on Dude Love. Uh, Dude Love came out first. Uh, he was followed by Austin, of course, who naturally received a huge pop. Austin's in the ring, and as he's uh, passing the belt over to the referee, Dude Love attacks behind from behind before the bell, which set the tone for this brawl. Uh, Austin takes it to Dude, so Dude bails to the outside, but Austin chases him. Uh, Austin chases him back inside the ring. He hits a Fez press and an elbow. Dude bails again after a spine buster and Austin again chases him outside, chases him down the ramp and absolutely clovers him with a vicious clothesline from behind. The brawl heads to the concert setup where Austin casually throws Dude off the stage about probably about six, seven feet down to the concrete below, which was just an absolutely awful bump for Floley to just take like on his back, on his hip. It just looked horrible, but he's straight back up. Uh, Austin hammers Dude all the way back to the ring and he hits a double axe handle off the apron. Uh, dude finally manages some offense as Austin gets tangled up in the ropes and Dude hits a bulldog. He punishes Austin with strikes and stomps at the corner. Austin hits another clothesline, but Dude immediately cuts him off before Austin can get any momentum going. He locks Austin in a body scissors, and then at this point, Vince McMahon heads down to ringside, casually nodding to the timekeeper. Austin fights out of the hold, yells at Vince, and Dude takes advantage of this to roll him up for a two. Austin beats down Dude in front of Vince and begins taunting him. Austin looks for a pile driver on the outside, but Dude backdrops him onto the floor. Vince distracts Austin, who stalks him down the aisle, but Dude runs in with a clothesline from behind of his own. Back in the ring, Dude locks on an abdominal stretch, but and Vince begins frantically telling the timekeeper to ring the bell, but the timekeeper, heeding Austin's warning from earlier in the show, does not. Austin quickly reverses the move into an abdominal stretch of his own, and Vince begins panicking, telling the timekeeper to immediately ignore his earlier pleas to ring the bell. That was great. They brawl outside again, and Austin counters a suplex with one of his own, 
with dude landing with his legs on the stairs. Another horrible bump for Foley there. Uh, dude tries to bail through the crowd, but Austin chases him and dumps him back in. Back in the ring, dude hits a neckbreaker. Austin blocks a sweet shin music, and the ref gets bumped as dude accidentally nails him with a clothesline. Dude blocks a stunner attempt and looks on a mandible claw. Austin tries to fight out of it, but dude goes low and locks it on again on the mat. Vince tries to revive the referee, but can't. Austin backdrop dude over the top rope to the outside. He grabs a chair and scuffles with Vince, so dude shoves the chair into Austin's face. Dude gets the chair himself. He charges at Austin, but Austin shoves it back into dude love. Dude drops the chair and falls to the floor. Vince tries to help Dude Love to his feet, going behind him, trying to lift him up. Austin grabs the chair, walks over, and absolutely nails Vince McMahon in the head with a chair shot, laying him out cold. Austin throws Dude Love back inside, hits him with a star, and counts the three himself with the referee still delayed out. His music actually played. Uh, Austin celebrates with the title as an unconscious Vince McMahon is stretched out. Gerald Briscoe tells Howard Finkel something, who then announced that Hostin has been disqualified for hitting a WWF official. So the winner of the match by disqualification is, in fact, Dude Love. Rory, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on our main event? Yeah, just sit back and enjoy the show, as they say. Terrific brawl between two terrific brawlers. And they left it all out there for the uh, full 20 minutes. These two were made to wrestle each other. They're, they're great friends uh, backstage. So they're always going to be able, it's going to be some real give and take on this one. I don't think they've ever faced each other before, have they? Not what I can think of. Not in any great, um, uh, certainly think, not in any great shakes. No, I think they had a raw match, like as mankind. Yes, that's right. Well, I remember anything kind of. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, but I do remember I don't that. Think one. It was anything like obviously major? They even wrestled in ECW. I don't think when it was, you know, Cactus and uh, Stunning Steve. Yes, yeah, that, that's um, the sort of thing yeah. I was thinking, or maybe in the WCW days. They have had a couple of raw ones, just thinking about it now. End of 96, I think, and there was one around about July, August time last year. But certainly nothing of this magnitude, and I really hope that we get it again. And judging by the finish and what we've got to raw the next day, I think we're going to. This is the style these days of what WWF main events are going to be. And sign me up for more of them, please, especially if it's going to be these two super proponents of it they went all over the place it didn't feel contrived it didn't feel quote-unquote pre-planned this is these these two guys doing what they do and in mick foley's case killing himself for our entertainment that bump off the stage no giving that one whatsoever no you're putting yourself through that in a match which you think which isn't going to end decisively i mean what risk is he going to take if there is a rematch for goodness sake yes i this was I loved every last second of this. Again, probably about two wrestling moves in the entire thing, and that was probably itself. Uh, solely talking about there the abdominal stretch reversals. Those are the two moves. Again, another great character spot. They've got their writing and their booking and their agency work. All three in their main events on point all the time now with WWF happen. All three of those always come together to create something truly special. Vince was great in his role, was trying to screw Austin out of the title, but trying not to do it terribly, obviously. You know, he took the chair shot of all chair shots. My God, he's, what, 52, 53 years old, and he's taking that full in the bonce for the sake of his company. Well, again, everybody here should hold their heads very high, and I think we're going to get it, we're going to get it again next month. We're very, very lucky. I should know as well, I've said in the past, I'm normally not 
somebody who is particularly appreciative of non-finishes on pay-per-views, especially main events, not here. Played into the story perfectly. This one has only just started. It's got a long, long way to go. At least one more pay-per-view match here. Maybe even two. So, yes, no problem with the finish. Although Vince McMahon had to nearly be decapitated for the sake of it. Two great brawlers having a great brawl. What more do you need these days? Thumbs up. Dan, your thoughts on our main event of Unforgiven? If this is going to be the style of main event with Austin at the helm and the best brawler in the in the industry, yeah, sign me up. And for a first go around, this is you know really really good stuff, which is about the same as we always say for WWF main events. Really, I mean, you know, when was the last bad WWF main event? That you know, I can't think of one compared to that. So the rival company who continuously let yourself down when you know, the big moments arrive. And that's why, in a way, the WWF are ahead of the terms at the minute because they deliver what when it really counts. And as Rory said, this probably looks like it's going to go on um, next month at least and potentially into King of the Ring. And, you know, Mick Foley and Steve Austin just have, you know, obviously good chemistry. They're great at what they do. It's difficult to go wrong in that sense. And even as dude love. You know, Mick Foley is going out and doing these ridiculous bumps um, just to make his body even sorer than it already is. And credit to him, even though I'd have to question the, the decision-making process of that for Sickly for the first go-around of this match. You could have saved those for the, for the next month's show or even King of the Ring if it happens, but it's his body. He obviously can do with it what he wants. I... I'm stunned that Mr. McMahon took that chair shot with that much force. For this is this isn't even a, re- a wrestling performer. This isn't Sandman or Tommy Dreamer having it. This is Mr. McMahon, who has only taken two or three bumps, you know, normal wrestling moves since he's his transition into an actual on-screen performer. And one of those was the sack of potato stunner in uh, Madison Square Garden <laughs> last year. So I do question the thinking behind it because it does, I think, set a bad example to your talent about what he deems to be acceptable. And, you know, ECW is great, but I do have to wonder about the, what, the health of someone getting hit in the head with a chair shot that hard repeatedly every single week. And if he's going out there and saying, look, I did, I did this chair shot, uh, you know, uh, you know, eight ball. Why don't, why don't you come over here? I think a chair shot to have it really spice up this angle with Los Bariquas. So <laughs> I do, I do wonder whether that was the wisest decision to to go with this, I and mean, it could have been. A, you could have easily done a less dangerous spot to achieve the same result. That would be my major criticism of this match. And obviously, as I've touched on before at the start of the show, this was the first chapter of a feud, so I couldn't get that invested in it compared to something like Kane versus Undertaker, which was most like, you know, definitely the final blow off match. Um, so, but as a match itself, as I've said, it was really, really good, a really fun brawl and something that I think we'll see a lot more of going into the next, into 1998 with this, with the company's direction and Austin at the top of the card, considering what he can do now in the ring without his neck injury. So yeah, a, a thumbs up for me, but with a couple of caveats. Yeah, I, I really love this main event. Um, played perfectly into multiple facets of this angle, which has been red hot for a while. Uh, mainly the Austin 
and uh, Vince stuff, but the dude love slotted himself into that perfectly in the last two weeks. Um, and even the, the small amount they've done with him on Raw played perfectly into this match. And Foley is not necessarily the dude love character, but Mick Foley, the, the wrestler, the performer, is just perfect in this role. Um, and some of the bumps he took are just absolutely hideous. Uh, like we already mentioned, but this match was just a wild brawl. It was fun, back and forth, huge bumps, like I said, and excellent story advancement. Um, played all, played off all the stuff really well, and of course, Vince McMahon at ringside was absolutely superb. The the spot with the uh, abdominal stretches where he's frantically telling the timekeeper, "Ring the bell, ring the bell, ring the bell." And the panic in his eyes when Austin reverses and he thinks for a moment the timekeeper is going to be stupid enough to ring the bell then because Vince had told him to like 10 seconds prior and the sheer frantic panic of please don't ring the bell now, please don't ring the bell. It was just brilliant. Um, everything about this main event clicked and that's down to the two men who were in the ring and, and Vince McMahon on the outside just being absolutely excellent at their jobs so uh yeah huge thumbs up for me to to round off the show so i'll come to you first rory with your overall thoughts on the pay-per-view and a score rating out of 10 yep as so often when we go through the shows here we turn over the stone reveal a few things that i'd hitherto not uh, hitherto not, not seen before yet my original mark which i came into this i'm still going to stick with and that is a seven out of ten which again might seem a little high for a show which had so many undoubtedly poor quality matches, two or three of which were plumbing some serious depths, including one of the, my least favourite angles of all time. But good storyline advancement, good showings from everybody, really, really good crowd, and everybody pulling their weight on a show where when you're coming out of WrestleMania, it might be tempted just to really go in at about 65 70%. You don't really feel you need feel the need yet at this stage of the cycle of the year to really give your all, but everybody is. Now, the company are hot right now, and they are rolling with it. They're not resting on their laurels. They're coming up with so many interesting things to keep themselves hot, and that includes what would otherwise be throwaway pay-per-views. So, yes, 7 out of 10, far from a perfect show, but knowing what the company is now providing for you, if you do sit down and watch it for the 2 hours 45 minutes, I don't think you will be disappointed. Go in with those expectations, and I think they'll be met. 7 out of 10. Dan, your overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10? This is a really tricky show to rate because I compare this to two months ago, and although there were you know, higher highs in this show, which is like the Dude Love and Austin match and the Inferno match, there was also a lot lower lows, like the LOD and New Age Outlaws for the umpteenth time and the god-awful uh, Battle of the Expresses and also the Sable, Sable Luna um, thing that happened. So I, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near seven on this show at all. I'm, I'm going to be a bit harsh. I'm going to say four. I just, it wasn't... It just... I don't know. It wasn't... It didn't... This is like if WrestleMania last month was greater than the sum of its parts, this feels like less than the sum of its parts because it, I don't know, something about this show didn't really click for me. I didn't enjoy watching this as much as I'd have other in your houses. And unlike some shows which has an outstanding Shawn Michaels match to really carry it and make it go out your way to watch it, 
as good as the matches with Austin and Taker and, and to a lesser extent Owen and Hart and Triple H were, they weren't go out your way to see. And that's the reason why I'm giving it a four, because if I paid money to watch this show, I would I would be a little bit disappointed and I wouldn't feel that I got my money's worth out of it because of all the terrible stuff that happened in the middle of the show and the fact that, again, you're waiting for bigger things to happen either next month or in the King of the Ring. I'm, I, I'm not as negative on this show as you are, Dan, but I'm definitely not as high as Rory. I, my original mark was a 5 out of 10, and I think I'll stick with that. Um, I, I really did love the main event, and I, I'd say the Inferno matches definitely worth watching just for the novelty of it and the spectacle. Um, but aside from that, you could probably skip everything. And there is a lot of garbage on this show. Um, probably mainly from a wrestling perspective on the undercard, um, a lot of rubbish, but with that, you've got a, a bunch of decent enough angles in, in place of good wrestling, which offered a lot of story advancement. And then it tops it off with a super hot main event which gave you more than enough reason to tune in the next night to Monday Night Raw. So I, I, I think WWF got, they would have looked at this show as a success. They would have got out of it what they wanted to get out of it. They maximised the spectacle of the Inferno match and got some great visuals. That the, the Sable Luna stuff, like say what you want about it, it delivered as advertised and would have probably made the vast majority of, of the, the males at the very least in that arena happy that night. Like, um, the main event was excellent. Um, I think a five out of ten is about right, just straight middle of the road. Um, it, I do come back to what I pondered earlier on the show about what is more valuable because the contrast in the 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 quality of the WWF undercard and the WCW undercard, and then the quality of the WWF main event to the WCW main event is just vast when you look at both facets of a show. But you're not selling tickets because of your great undercard. You're selling tickets because of your stars. And there aren't better stars in the industry right now for me than Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon um, in their respective roles. Um, so I, if I'd paid money to watch this show because I wanted to see Stone Cold Steve Austin and I wanted to see how he would could get one up on Vince McMahon and avoid Vince McMahon screwing him as he so subtly promised for weeks on end, I would have been satisfied because it delivered that. And all the other stuff is kind of baggage. Um, it accomplished everything I thought it needed to. Five out of ten for me. Good enough show. Folks, we are still in shock here in the war zone by the remarks that Paul Bear made. I just can see his clothing. Listen. I can see the pain in his eyes. Don't you understand? It was my son whose hand was on fire. And of course, the Undertaker obviously was shocked. What we're hearing then is that Paul Bear is Kane's father. And do you know what that means? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. That means Paul Bearer had to sleep with The Undertaker's mother. Good Lord. Whoa! Ladies and gentlemen.
the final Raw of the month opened with the announcers telling us that earlier today DX had invaded WCW at the Norfolk Scope, 15 minutes away from the arena. We see clips of DX dressed in military gear making dick jokes as they get motivated to fire the first shot at WCW. They all climbed onto a jeep and drove off. The opening match of the night saw Ken Shamrock and Owen Hart take on Mark Henry and The Rock. Before the match, The Rock did a promo saying that finally the people's champ had come to Hampton. Owen went to start the match but immediately turned on Shamrock, kicking him low and beating him down with the rest of the nation. Steve Blackman tried to make the save but they just beat him down too. Dude Love came out for another edition of the Love Shack. He spoke about how tough his match with Austin was the night before. He said Austin had taken the easy way out by cheap shotting Vince with a chair and that Austin should be stripped of the title. Dude said he should face former champ Shawn Michaels for the title or there should be a tournament. His favourite idea was firing Austin and just handing him the belt. Back to the DX invasion. Triple H told WCW to suck it. He asked fans waiting outside the WCW arena if Eric Bischoff sucked and they all cheered. The camera zoomed in on the marquee that said free emission from Andre Nitro. A fan that said that WCW sucked and DX ruled before DX led the crowd in chance for DX. The Headbangers vs Terry Funk and Two Cold Scorpio had a brawl of attack match that got thrown out when the referee got thrown down three minutes in. Scorpio hit a moonsault after the match before the Headbangers hit Scorpio with a superplex splash combo. Back to the DX invasion where DX were trying to get into the building where Nitro was being filmed. Hunter started a chant of let my people go referring to the WCW's very own Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Vince McMahon came out for a promo. He says the chair shot he took from Austin last night wasn't an accident and that Austin was aiming for him. He said firing Austin would be too good for him and booked Austin in a title match versus Goldust for later tonight. He announced the special referee for the match would be Gerald Briscoe. If Austin lays one finger on Briscoe, he would have his contract terminated and relinquish the title. Vince said Goldust wasn't an ideal WWF champion, but anyone was better than Austin. Jeff Jarrett took on Bradshaw in a match that lasted a minute before Club Kamikaze jumped Bradshaw for the DQ. Tucker Michinoku tried to make the save, but the numbers were too much for him. Kevin Kelly tried to interview Dude Love backstage. He said this was not the way things were meant to be. He said he wanted to wear tie-dye, so I did. He wanted me to beat Austin, so I did. He walked past Vince and blanked him. Vince questioned this and Dude warned him not to screw him. Vince looked into the camera, realised it was live and demanded that they cut immediately. The DOA took on the New Age Outlaws with the DOA picking up a quick win after some twin magic led to Billy Gunn being rolled up. The Undertaker defeated Barry Mindham in a minute with a chokeslam and a tombstone. He demanded Kane come out to fight. Kane wearing a thick bandage on his burned arm and Paul Bearer came out. Bearer spoke about Kane being burned as a child and said it was time for a truce because he couldn't bear to see Kane burned again. He said it was his son who was on fire. Jerry Lawler then spelled this out for us, saying that that means Paul Bearer must have slept with the Undertaker's mother. Thanks King. Kevin Kelly interviewed Goldust and Luna backstage. Goldust said he would be a proper champion because he never used foul language or made obscene gestures. Dude Love zoomed in and wiped him out from behind and insisted that it should be his title shot instead. Hunter, China and X-Pac came out. Hunter offered an open challenge for his WWF European title. 8-Ball tried to accept but Dan Seven jogged past him to get there first. Jim Cornette ran out and tried to talk it out. Talk Seven out of it, resulting to slapping some sense into the beast. Seven responded by taking him down and locking on a submission, and DX just walked away. Mark Romero said Sable had to humiliate him by getting stripped to her bra and panties. Sable said that she liked it and the people liked it too, and they'd like it even better when she put Miro in his place. He laughed at her and said that she couldn't beat him up. 
She said she would try, and it was time for her to stand on her own. She challenged him to a fight, and in two weeks, she said she would humiliate him in front of the world. Vince met with Briscoe again to make sure he'd be a good ref, and shook his hand. Our main event of the evening was, of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin taking on Goldust for the WWF Championship. Briscoe reminded Austin of the rules pre-match. During the match, Briscoe was slow counting for Austin, but counted normally for Goldust. He started counting quicker for Goldust, but always stopped when Austin kicked out. Briscoe dared Austin to punch him, but he refrained. Austin hit the stunner, and Briscoe counted slowly before stopping because he had something in his eye. Dude Love ran out and attacked Austin, but Briscoe gave him a slow five count. Vince swung the belt at Austin, but he ducked, and Vince hit Briscoe instead, which busted him open. The ref, with the ref out of commission, a match just seemed to end, and Austin's music played to signal a chaotic end to the month. That we've got uh, one last Raw of the month. It took place the night after Under- Unforgiven, and there's two things from that show I'd like to pick out for a bit of detailed discussion. The first is the latest development in the Undertaker and Kane storyline. Uh, Undertaker had a match, I believe it was with uh, Barry Windham. Uh, after the match, Kane came out wearing a thick bandage on his burned arm, and Paul Bearer was with him, of course. Bearer spoke about Kane being burned as a child and said it was time for a truce because he can't bear to see Kane burned again. He said that it was his son who was on fire. Jerry Lawler then ran, took this, took the ball and ran with it. He spelled this out for us. He said that this means that Paul Bearer must have slept with the Undertaker's mother. Basically, Paul Bearer is Kane's dad, and that's the major revelation we got here. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first. From uh, the Undertaker's parents being burned a week prior to a revelation over the father of Kane. Uh, what are your thoughts on the latest development with Undertaker and Kane? I think it's, it's well, it's interesting. I, d- I don't think it's as potentially as major as, you know, the digging up your parents' graves and, and setting them on fire, but it gives them a realistic and a plausible reason why Paul is all of a sudden wanting to end the feud with The Undertaker because he's too afraid for his son's well-being. And if you want to delve into the kayfabe explanation of this, Kane has obviously been burned by the fire that killed his mother and her husband. He has been set on fire again. He's probably a bit too traumatized now to to feud with Undertaker after all this. So, what better way to get out of it than for compassion for your son? Which you know, it it's a good explanation as to why Kane will now probably pivot to the feud with the returning Vader. Um, and yeah, it, it's fine. It's another good plausible um, facet to this whole intricate backstory. And you know, I've got I've got no problem with it. I think it's another. Decent introduction, but again, as this view is now kind of winding down, it's another little tidbit to kind of look into in a few months' time when these guys will probably be feuding again for something WWF title, number one contendership, um, whatever. So, yeah, it's not too it's, it's good. Rory, what did you make of the latest twist in the tale? Yeah, it's it is something different. I didn't see it coming. If it is the final full stop on at least these chapters of the story, then I can kind of go on with it. But again, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I'm not sure how this is really going to sell any tickets, what Paul Burrow might or might not have got up to about uh, 25, 30 years ago, whatever. It does make sense. And again, Bearer himself delivered his lines really, really well. He's an amazing character at, the, at this point in time. I think he's even better now than he was last year. He's so tremendous and so 
this, I'm going to use this word, believable for a storyline which, <laughs> let's face it, isn't particularly grounded in reality. Bearer does his absolute best with it and he carries it on. But one thing I did find really strange about it is how low-key it seemed. They didn't really dwell on it after the fact at all. We had the supposed big reveal. We had about two seconds to think about it. But Jerry Lawler gives us his amateur biology lesson. And then that's it. I suppose the real question is, will they be going back to this particular part of the storyline again next week going forward? But again, if they do, I don't think that's really going to be part of any future Undertaker-Kane feud. Certainly not at the moment where it looks as though we're done with this one for at least the time being. So yes, again, it's all the whole the whole point of what, what pro wrestling is when people talk about being soap opera for guys. They don't need to push it quite so obviously as this is coming up with soap opera storylines. I'm your father, storylines like that. But again, they got away with it in a way they didn't the week before, which was just egregious and horrible. This was just a storyline twist I don't think we really needed, but it was played off as well as it could be, if oddly low-key, like I said. And finally, uh, the last major angle of the month that we're going to touch on in great detail. Uh, throughout the last Raw of the month, we had, as Rory mentioned in the news at the start of the show, uh, clips of DX in military gear driving around in a Jeep uh, to the arena that WCW were at that night. Um, they were outside the arena making jokes with WCW fans about how much WCW sucked. Um, they made jokes about how the fans hadn't paid to be there and eventually tried to force their way into the arena WCW was holding Nitro at. Uh, Rory, back to you first. What did you make of this whole DX invasion of the rival company? Again, it was different, wasn't it? Uh, I want, I'd like to know whose idea this actually was. Was it DX's idea? Was it Vince's idea? Was it just the quirk of fate that the two companies happened to have a show 30 miles away from each other? If this had happened a year ago, if this happened even six months ago, Vince McMahon would not even have blinked an eyelid. He would have done everything he could to avoid the fact of reminding everybody that they had shows taking place just 30 miles away. But here, when the momentum is with him, he's going to go with it and he's going to twist the knife just a little more. DX came across as total baby faces in this, which I thought was really interesting. I'm not sure if that was the intention, but here they are defending the company they work for against evil, horrible Ted Turner's WCW. So to me, are they turning the whole of DX face? I'm not sure that's the best idea in the world. I'd keep them healed for a little while longer yet. But uh, how can you not support them if they're supporting your company? over World Championship Wrestling. And there were a couple of funny lines in there. I did laugh at Helmsley's Let My People Go about National Hall. And you got Walkman there banging on the door asking, hey, maybe you can explain why you fired me by FedEx. But it was always going to be a little bit flawed. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was great. I don't think we're going to get an explanation on that one. It was always going to be flawed for two main reasons. One, they were never going to be able to get in to the arena because they were there during the morning, and there probably wasn't really a whole lot going on. And what would they have done if they had gone in there? Would they have been, you know, this wasn't during a live broadcast. Nitro wasn't even shown until after midnight on that day. I think they knew they were going to be stopped at the door by either the Jeep or when they tried to walk through the concourse. And secondly, things were never going to explode. If you notice, every time we saw a shot of them, Bruce Pritchard was there to make sure that things didn't get too out of hand. Yes, symbolically, this was very important. And again, it was 
an incredible blurring of the lines that you just could not see happening just a few years ago when it was a case of never the twain shall meet. You never even acknowledged the opposition. And now here you are trying to effectively, in essence, break into their own show. The inc- incredible television, not that anything was ever really going to come of it, but just goes to show that WWF are not afraid of WCW now at all. Dan, what did you make of the invasion? Well, the old adage of um, the best form of defence is to attack, and especially whilst you've got your momentum on your hands. So uh, it probably was a Vince idea. I mean, you, you know, I, I don't particularly think that Triple H had the balls to get a tank, a cameraman, and bring an agent along with him to... Jeep, not know. a tank. Everyone's saying a tank. It was a Jeep. Just a Jeep. I'm sorry. I saw a cannon. I just think of a With, tank a, with, a, with a cannon. A Jeep with a cannon. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just I just think that you know Triple H. It was probably this is the, probably the biggest moment I thought actually he felt like a star. Where you know this probably was the first time that I thought that this guy actually carried himself like the, a leader of an upper card act because you know no bones about it. It you know DX beforehand was a Shawn Michaels vehicle to get to make himself the biggest prick known to man. With Triple H and to less extent China going on going along for the ride, whereas and then with Triple H now the leader of the helm and bringing in the kid who was a, a decent worker but a mid carder, the New Age Outlaws who are the tag team champions but they were are not good wrestlers they shouldn't be at the top of the card, so it did feel like a mid card act at some stages during the last month of television. This though, particularly from people like Triple H, where he did carry himself like a really big mid-card, upper mid-card star in the mould of The Rock or, you know, an up-and-coming Steve Austin when he was sort of in late 96, where you felt like this actually had some momentum behind him. He carried himself well. He managed to turn a crowd of people who were going to see WCW chanting WCW sucks and, you know, getting them to be on the side of DX, which was, you know something to actually be proud of in a way, even though, you know, fans probably would have been cheering them anyway because it's, oh my God, it's WWF people at WWE show. Like, you know, and the fact that they actually managed to, you know, pull up the fact that WCW for months has been drumming on about how they've been selling out arenas left, right and center, wherever state and, cunt and town they've been in. And it turns out they've just been giving their tickets away for free, which obviously goes on at every single wrestling show. But the fact that you can, you know, have it on camera and show it off to your company you know, to the competition that they are yeah they are giving away tickets they're not as good as everyone seems to make out to them and the fact that they can um be shown to be really flawed and have quantifiable evidence of their flaws rather than you know having um d-grade actors playing hucks to a natural man instead of you know so yeah i i thought this was entertaining it wasn't, it was, you know, obviously a bit cringy in parts of it because it's, you know, having four grown up men dressed in um, headhunting t- attire, you know, with a megaphone. It is going to be, feel a little bit amateurish at start at points, but overall, this was entertaining and another kind of spiritual blow WWF has inflicted on WCW in a month where they have been hitting them hard. Yeah, I completely agree with both of you. I agree with you, Rory, that a short time ago, WWF would have never entertained this idea, anything that drew attention to WCW and the other company. 
would have just been immediately dismissed. And the fact that they ran this angle throughout Raw shows is is just a clear reflection of the position they now see themselves in and the importance of Stone Cold Steve Austin and this Vince McMahon character has within the WWF. And Dan completely agree. 24 hours removed from my criticism of Triple H as as a, a heel in a match. This is the first time, to me, he came off as someone with main event potential. He was really charismatic throughout. And I know it's not in the ring, but maybe a lot of the time, that's if you've got a natural charisma to you, the in-ring side will come with time. Um, charisma isn't really learned. It's sort of you either have it or you don't. And he demonstrated some here outside of just being the leader in very much air quotes at this stage after sort of like he's new in the role um, of a very much mid card act. He came across as someone who had main event potential here. So an entertaining angle um, on the last roar of the month to sum up what on the whole, I would say had been an entertaining month of WWF programming. And with that, that will do it nicely for this month's WWF edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Uh, As I said at the start of the show, this is volume two for the month. Volume one is WCW looking at Spring Stampede and volume three, of course, is ECW. I'd like to thank firstly Rory for joining me. Rory, uh, thanks very much for being on the show. You can be found on Twitter. I'm Ross DM on Twitter. R-O-S-R-O-R-S. I'll try again. R-O-R-S-D-M. And a pleasure as always, Mr. White. Great show. Thank you very much, Rory. And of course, Dan. Dan, thank you very much for being on the show. And you can be found on Twitter. At Daniel886. It's a pleasure to be here in the first show of the new era, where our love of Owen Hart can go and be broadcast to the nation as much as we want. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, thank you both very much for joining me. I have been the host for this episode, uh, Chris White, and you can find me on Twitter at ChrisWhite14. Uh, to all the listeners, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>